Hello, my name is Chris White and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast where we're going back in the time machine to August of 1999 to bring you all this month's WWF coverage. Joining me for the month we have firstly Eric Landstrom. Eric, how are we doing? Chris, happy to be back. Awesome to have you as always and rounding off a stellar month of guests we have the excellent Bob Colling. Bob, how are we? I am doing pretty well. I hope you guys are doing well as well. Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, very well. Um, over to you, gentlemen. Uh, would you mind taking us through the news for the month? Uh, WWF SummerSlam saw the company put on one of its better pay-per-view offerings of 1999. The show featured five title changes out of six titles at stake, including the WWF Championship in the main event. Mankind won the WWF Championship in the said main event, a decision apparently made a few days before the match because of internet reports that Helmsley was winning the title. Mankind held the title for around 24 hours, going on to lose it to Triple H the following night on Raw. As expected, due to the involvement on Jesse Ventura, SummerSlam led all newscasts Sunday and Monday in Minnesota and garnered front-page newspaper coverage, plus was covered strongly nationally. The World Wrestling Federation has officially changed its corporate name from Titan Sports, Inc. to World Wrestling Federation Entertainment, Inc. and announced on the 3rd of August that it has filed papers to go public. The story drew front page coverage in New York in the New York Times, which followed with a feature on Vince McMahon the next day and was considered one of the major business stories of the month. This news comes after a couple of hairy things went away. First, the Reno, Mary La- Rena Merrow lawsuit, easy for me to say, was settled out of court, and the Kansas City police ended their criminal investigation into the death of Owen Hart without filing charges. And so the initial public offering will be for uh, $172.5 million in Class A common shares of company stock to be traded on the NASDAQ exchange as WWFE. The money raised in the offering will be used as capital to continue current wrestling business and to help start new business ventures. The WWF plans to expand far beyond pro wrestling into numerous other businesses, which could include theme restaurants, theme hotels, and even a record label. There has also been talk of potential expansion into other sports-related industries. Elsewhere in a big month for the company, WWF SmackDown, which was largely a clone of Raw with a new set, debuted to a 4.16 rating and 7.2 share on the UPN network, which beat out the 4.0 that the highest-rated show of all previous week uh, on UPN delivered. SmackDown also led Thunder to doing its all-time lowest rating, which I hear was zero. (laughs) The Kansas City Police Department's criminal investigation into the death of Owen Hart was completed without any charges being filed. According to a story carried nationally by the Associated Press, Jackson County prosecutor decided there is no basis for any involuntary manslaughter charge against the rigging coordinator. Criminal, or excuse me, this is a quote, criminal and civil matters are two separate issues, said Pamela Fisher of Calgary, part of the legal team that filed a suit representing members of the Hart family against Titan Sports for wrongful death. Quote, They are two different proceedings, and I don't think it will have any impact on our case, end quote. The WWF on its website claimed the decision, quote, further supports the World Wrestling Federation's belief as to the truly excellent nature of Owen Hart's death. Hart's accident was one of those extremely unfortunate tragedies that sometimes occur despite the best of precautions. 
the WWF are said to be in the process of finalizing three more roster additions, ECW's tag team of the Dudley Boys and Stevie Richards. While none have signed contracts yet, the Dudleys reached a verbal agreement during the week with Jim Ross and started an angle that would lead to their finishing up with ECW. Richards, who has been working independently for the past several months, had been talked with and considered for a spot in WWF, including considered as a spot for as a part of DX for some time, but the major holdup had been the condition of his once broken neck. Richards was examined at the start of the month and received medical clearance, which is expected to pave the way for his signing. Excellent. Uh, thank you uh, both very much. Um, Eric, I'll come to you first. Uh, fairly newsworthy month for the Fed, to say the least. Uh, anything you, from the news you'd like to sort of pick out as a topic that we could discuss in further detail? Floor is yours kind of thing. Yeah, certainly. We'll talk about uh, SummerSlam and all the wild and crazy booking that led up to it. And what followed, uh, August 99 was uh, uh, active. And so, but it comes on the heels of an active last couple months for the year too. The Marina Mara lawsuit coming to an end. All this, all this kind of turmoil that had circulated around the company. It's almost like they get all these lawsuits resolved and they make their initial public offering. Funny how that works. But I think it just also speaks to just like how mainstream wrestling is right now. And for a wrestling company to say we want to go public and sell and, and sell our stock to everybody. And we're also going to make movies and open theme parks and restaurants. I mean, is this WWF or is this Disney? It's just insane to where this company was three years ago when it couldn't pay Bret Hart anything to now. And so, uh, you know, let's just see how long this goes because it's crazy to think about. Uh, Bob, over to you. Any more on what Eric said or a different story? Um... Well, a couple of things. Uh, with the whole unfortunate situation with Owen Hart, um, I don't think anybody can really sit here and say that any intentional crime was committed. Obviously, as uh, Pamela Fisher noted, that a civil matter is completely different. And I don't know if the WBF, you know, in the right state of mind, could really put up a fight uh, in terms of helping out the family with the necessary funds to kind of cover the unfortunate situation there. Uh, but to kind of tag on with like ECW deal, I think the Dudley boys coming into the company is, is an interesting, uh, an interesting addition because obviously with ECW, they're, you know, riot inducing type of things here, but they're not gonna be able to do the same things I would imagine in the WWF, which is a little bit, which is a riskier, you know, promotion in terms of television compared to WCW, which would might've been another destination for them. But uh, the note here of Stevie Richards being considered for Degeneration X is a little <laughs> off-putting. Uh, I mean, I understand with like, the whole BWO deal that you know he has humor to and all these things, but I don't think a lot of people can sit here and say that Stevie Richards is cool or comes across as cool. And even with the brief kind of encounters that we've seen thus far on Raw uh, here in August, he doesn't come across as really at the same level of anybody that's in Degeneration X, whether it be current or in the past. Um, so yeah, that that's just kind of a weird kind of notion. And then I feel bad for uh, WCW because, I mean, like Eric kind of jokingly said, I mean, no one really watches Thunder. Maybe if you know you weren't doing anything on a on a Thursday night, but now with SmackDown, even with a less you know 
not having nearly the amount of depth that WCW has, but they're able to still make SmackDown early on uh, seem like it's something that you have to watch. Uh, it just kind of just shows you how pointless Thunder has been for almost since the, the inception of it and how they can't really produce good television despite having 400 people on their roster. So, you know, there's a, there's a few lawsuits going on, and of course we'll get into SummerSlam uh, in just a few minutes here, but uh, WWF is really kicking on all c- cylinders to have that type of rating and share on UPN. That's, I would have to say, is pretty impressive. Can we uh, can we talk about the Dudley thing for a minute? Of course. Uh, yeah. Is anybody else nervous about this? And and here's why. It seems like any time any one of these ECW guys uh, that are heavily predicated on a gimmick uh, goes to one of the major companies, and it, it has particularly been WCW, so I'll, I'll give it that, where they're even more restrained. But yeah. uh, the, the list of guys that I can just kind of sketch off in the last 30 seconds uh, who have failed from going from a very over and very popular ECW act to a failed mainstream act, Sabu in 95, Sandman, Stevie Richards, and Raven, and even Mikey Whipwreck to a degree, who's just become kind of a you know, jobber fodder on, on, on Thunder. So uh, obviously Sabu, Sandman, and, and Raven are the three huge examples, and the Dudley Boys are, are basically the tag team equivalent of each of those three guys. They come out, they incite a riot, they do these disgusting walking brawls with uh, thumbtacks and cheese graters and flaming tables. And they're okay wrestlers, especially Devon, but like they're not all that awesome. Bubba can bump, but these guys are going to have to work matches to some degree and not have to rely on all that stuff. Is any? I don't know that that's going to work. To my mind, I mean, I was thinking about this news and the WWF tag division. I had some quite harsh words to say about it at the end of uh, last year in our sort of uh, awards show and. looking specifically at this month and the turmoil, tag team turmoil match we had at SummerSlam and the tag division feels like it's gone quite, maybe to an extent under the radar, but it has come quite a long way mm-hmm. throughout 1999. Um, and the quality is night and day compared to last year. And it's not there yet necessarily, but to my, I, I completely understand your concerns, but to my mind, if the, the Dudleys coming in feels like a big acquisition for a steadily improving division, but I can totally understand the concerns regarding style and basically what that team relies on in order to be as successful as they are and whether that can translate into the WWF. I should have added public enemy to my list as well. Public enemy is another good example. Well, I, I kind of feel like Raven had a level of success. I, I wouldn't say he was a complete flop by any means. Everybody else that you mentioned would come in and within two or three months, if not weeks, be just minimalized to nothing. I mean, Raven throughout most of 98 was pretty decent. And then he had like two or three months in, in 99 so far where uh, he was, you know, treated fairly well. I, I'd say he was a pretty good upper mid card your guy for like six months or so. so it wasn't a complete flop but when it comes to the dudley boys i think that uh they are for sure going to get watered down there's, there's no way that they wouldn't be uh because i don't think bubba will be able to come on to a raw or smackdown every week and insult people's mothers uh, very vulgarly and uh you know do 
not safe for work type of material uh, each and every time. And I think in terms of in-ring ability, they, they fit in very well, I think, with, with WWF. And I'll use SummerSlam as a reference. I mean, the show really came across to me and a lot of WWF programming is brawling. I mean, it's, it's a lot of just punches and, and stuff like that and using weapons and not, didn't, not getting disqualified for it or whatever. So I, I think in that regard, they'll, they'll probably fit in pretty well. And the idea of maybe a Dudley Boys Acolytes match or feud could potentially be, you know, a stiff, hard-hitting match. And it might be the direction you go in, you know, if they first come in. I don't, I don't know if you can bring them in and immediately – make them like the top heel team or whatever, or what they want to do, because realistically there is depth to the tag team division, as we kind of mentioned unknowingly, you wouldn't really, you have to think about it, but a few of these popular teams are not like traditional tag partners, which is kind of been a trend. I think in all of major companies where it's two singles guys that maybe don't have a direction. And then we just put them together like Xbox and Kane. Like they're not like not a well-formed group or undertaker and big show just kind of thrown together. But you know, having the Dudley boys in there with, you know, the accolades, as I mentioned, or uh, the Hardy boys or the new brood or whatever they want to call them now or an edging Christian. Uh, th- there's a- enough variety there, I think, um, that they'll fit in pretty well. And if they're working with smaller guys like that, similar to what they do with like Spike, they might get over even quicker with the uh, WWF audience. So I- I'm intrigued for sure for the Dudley boys to see how they can fit in uh upon their entry here to the WF, whenever that may be. I'm assuming later on in the fall. The first roar of the month opens with the Acolytes challenging The Undertaker and Big Show. Hardcore Holly comes out and is willing to take on both Acolytes, who obliterate him with ease. Our opening TV match of the month sees Edge defeat Gangrel in a bloodbath match, thanks to the help of Christian. Shane comes out for a promo. He talks about Vince for a while, about how he left on his own terms after building the WWF into the biggest entertainment company in the world. Without Vince, there would be no Austin. There would be no t-shirts. There would be no fans. There would even be no WCW, who stars Vince built years ago. He turns his attention to Test, which brings the big man out. Test had warned Shane to mind his own business, but now he is going to get him and his posse. Test vows Steph is going to be an only child. Big Show and The Undertaker defeated Kane and Road Dog after Taker pins Rody following a tombstone. China and Billy Gunn are in the ring. Mr. Ass is talking about The Rock's ass and it is not riveting stuff. Rock is on the Titan Tron to retaliate, talking about Billy's fat mother and running through his catchphrases. D'Lo Brown defeats Jeff Jarrett in a title v title match to add the IC title to his European belt. Jarrett demands a rematch at SummerSlam. Austin is out for a promo. He's had enough of Triple H and vows to kick his ass at SummerSlam. The Undertaker and Big Show interrupt, with Taker demanding his rematch or he and Show will make him pay. They don't wait around and they beat Austin down in the ring, Austin staggers to the back. Big Boss Man defeats Viscera to retain the hardcore title with the nightstick. Tess defeats Rodney in two minutes in a total squash. Val Venus vs Steve Blackman ends in a no contest after Shamrock interferes, going after Blackman. Our main event of Austin defending the title against Undertaker never gets started. Triple H comes down leading to a brawl between the three men and the Big Show. The Acolytes get involved as the Kane and Road Dog. Holly runs in, followed by Mr. Ass, bringing out The Rock. Eventually, we're left with Austin stunning Mr. Ass and Rhodey taking a pedigree from Hunter. We fade with Austin and Triple H glaring at one another. 
The Rock gets us started on the second draw of the month. Rocky tells Show he should never have put his hands on him before calling him the Big Slow. Show and Taker eventually go after The Rock and beat him down until X-Pac makes the save until he is overwhelmed by Taker and Show. Road Dog follows suit until Kane comes out and clears both Taker and Show. In our opener, Gangrel defeats Christian after Matt and Jeff Hardy run in, helping beat down Christian. Next up is an interview with Jesse Ventura. He brags about being a Navy SEAL and a real wrestler. Eventually, Triple H is out and Jesse tells him he needs to work on his wrestling moves. <laughs> Hunter squares up to Jesse, reminding him he isn't in Minnesota. Shawn Michaels is out to book Hunter vs Taker vs Austin in a triple threat match. Val Venus defeats Jeff Jarrett with a roll-up, with Double J blaming Deborah. We see Austin laid out backstage, he is wheeled unconscious into an ambulance. We see a cinder block near his head and Sean vows that Hunter will pay. Sean comes out for a promo. He demands Hunter come out, but he doesn't, and he changes tonight's match. It's now no DQ, false count anywhere, and for the number one contendership at SummerSlam, Sean books himself as the referee also. He then books China as Austin's replacement in the match. China looks initially stunned, but after Hunter laughs at the idea as she is just a girl, China is pissed and tells Triple H to try her. Kane and X-Pac became the new WWF Tag Team Champions as they defeat the Acolytes in a tag match after X-Pac pins Farouk with the X-Factor. Tess and Ken Shamrock defeat Steve Blackman and Joey Abs after Tess gets the pin on Blackman following a pump handle slam. Tess shatters Abs' ankle with a chair afterwards. In an angle we'll talk more about on the main show, The Rock is out for a promo when he is interrupted with the debut of the Millennium Man, Chris Jericho. Road Dog defeats Bossman in a non-title match after interference from Show, and The Rock faces Show. Holly had been frantically looking for him backstage and once the match got underway, the Big Shot could easily find his target. The Big Show tried to get Holly to go away and when he wouldn't, the Show headbutts him down. The Rock seizes opportunity gives the Big Show a low blow from behind. Follows up with a DDT, but whilst fixing to drop the people's elbow, Chris Jericho came out of nowhere, punches him from behind to run away. Uh, the Rock was shocked and chased after Jericho until Mr. Ass catches Rocky and lays him out. And in our main event between Triple H, China and The Undertaker, Austin returned to the arena, steel chair in hand. Austin clobbering Triple H, knocking him out cold, dragging China on top and referee Michaels counting to three. China is the number one contender, earning herself a title shot at SummerSlam. So we'll head into the coverage of the month itself for the WWF. So before we get to our review of SummerSlam, there are three episodes of Monday Night Raw we have to get through. Um, I think the TV reports will probably have you covered for the first episode of the month on the 2nd of August. Um, felt like I had little of note that is sort of worth breaking down uh, on this main show here. I did uh, enjoy the Edge and Gangrel bloodbath match uh, with Edge defeating Gangrel grow with the help of Christian before he and Edge embraced an apparent reunion and it did feel very much like they were blowing off the angle on TV rather than pay-per-view but obviously that was not necessarily the case um, moving on to the much more newsworthy 9th of August edition of Raw so we'll start with a discussion around an angle which saw the rock in the ring cutting a promo on the big show when we get an appearance uh, from the count la countdown to the millennium clock with just 15 seconds on the timer. And then we hear this. Check your big fat ass directly into the Smackdown Hotel. Big shows will need a big king-sized bed, isn't he? <laughs> wait a minute. Hey, wait a minute. 
and reactions of the live crowds. Complete and utter silence. And I know why you're silent. You're silent because you're embarrassed to be here. What? And quite honestly, I'm embarrassed for you. And the reason why you're embarrassed is because of the steady stream of uninteresting, untalented, mediocre sports entertainers who you're forced to cheer for and care for. No wonder you're not cheering. You can care less about every single idiot in that dressing room, and especially this idiot in the center of the ring. A rock is going to explode, King, any minute. You people have been led to believe that mediocrity is excellence. Uh-uh. Jericho is excellence. He's got a lot of guts to interrupt the rock. And now, for the first time in WWF history, you have a man who can entertain you. You have a man who is good enough for you. You have a man who can make you jump up off your chairs, raise your filthy fat little hands in the air, and scream, go Jericho, go! Go Jericho, go! Go Jericho, go! Thank you. The new millennium has arrived in the WWF. And now that the Y2J problem is here, this company, from the front office idiots, to all the amateurs in the dressing room, including this one, to everybody watching tonight, will never, ever, be the same again! Y2J, did he say Y2J? Yeah, I heard it. Look, The Rock is dumbfounded. He's an arrogant young man. <laughs> After three boring minutes, The Rock says, Know your role and shut your mouth! I second that. How dare you, little jabroni, come on The Rock show and not even have the class to introduce yourself? What is your name? I told you it doesn't matter what your name is. He oh, no. got you. That way. The Rock says you talk about your Y2J plan. Well, The Rock has a little plan of his own, and it's called the KY Jelly Plan. Oh no! Which? <laughs> you know what that is, Jr. Yeah. You do. Which means The Rock is gonna lube his size 13 boot real good, turn that some bitch sideways, oh. and stick it straight up. You can do it.
is cooking. So, as you have just heard, the uh, Millennium Man revealed himself to be Chris Jericho to a deafening reaction. Chris welcomed us to Raw is Jericho before introducing himself as the most charismatic showman to ever grace a TV screen and a dawning of a new era in the WWF. After four or five minutes, Jericho vows that nothing will ever be the same again and Rocky gets on the mic and retorts. After three boring minutes, know your roll and shut your mouth the rock spends the next few minutes running through his catchphrases before spitting in jericho's direction as his music plays to end the segment so bob the millennium man has been revealed what did you make of this wwf debut for chris jericho well i'm glad to see him back on television uh since he hadn't really been seen since uh i guess what late spring or so for wcw uh, an interaction with a guy like The Rock is uh, a pretty good way to start it off. I would I would say uh, I don't know if I wouldn't say maybe he won the exchange by any means, but inserting him so immediately with the main event guy uh, to that caliber kind of puts him maybe in that initial um, level. Obviously, I, I would say clearly by the end of the month, he's not there and that's not their direction. But I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought, you know, the whole countdown to it and I'm glad that it was Jericho. Um, I, I've always enjoyed his stuff and hopefully uh, he can work with you know better guys than Road Dog or whatever. And this whole Fink thing, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later. But uh, I was uh, I, I thought it was effective. I, I enjoyed it. Um and, uh, I mean, there's nothing really too much for me to kind of base it off of. So, I mean, could I see him beating a guy like The Rock or something? Probably not at this point. But uh, so I think there's potential for Jericho to, to have a, a successful tenure with the uh, WWF, depending on how long he sticks around. But there's there's definitely intrigue on my side. They can't handle it as badly as they did the switch of the giant. <laughs> to Paul White and how he was um, <laughs> yeah. quite so quickly. Uh, Eric, uh, over to you, your thoughts on Jericho's debut in this segment. Yeah, I experienced kind of a wave of emotion, as stupid as that sounds, about Jericho's debut as the month progressed after he debuted, because at the time it was like, oh, this is cool, and the pop was huge, and the presentation was as as good as WWF gets, which when they get it right, can be great, and this was great. And Jericho immediately seemed a bigger star than he'd ever seemed in WCW by a mile. And then he cuts this amazing promo and he's playing still essentially the same character as he had been in WCW, but definitely WWF affected. Um, And he cuts this great promo and the crowd's with him and he's exactly what we wanted. And then uh, The Rock did his thing. And I think Bob's right when you can't really say who won this exchange. And a lot of people will say The Rock did just because... He's the rock and when given a chance to retort and he, he did. Um, and so I was kind of like, well, do we really want Jericho to be shown up by the rock? And that kind of puts Jericho back a couple pegs from the outset as the month progressed. It seems like they're going to work Jericho from a, a mid card roll up into the main event, hopefully into the main event. Um, if they see him like that. But, you know, he, he does start a feud with Road Dog. He cuts off uh, mid-card matches here and there. He hooks up with Howard Finkel, which is by no means a main event gimmick. Um, so 
Yeah, it seems like they're going to kind of stash him right where he was in WCW. And, you know, in the corporate world, we call this a lateral move. But the difference being, you know, at his new company, Jericho has a lot more room for growth. Um, so uh, I, I was kind of fine with how they handed, handled him with The Rock, seeing as how they're going to treat him moving forward. So all in all, I think it was successful. And I think they firmly established Jericho as what he's going to be for the next four months. Yeah, I mean, the actual reveal was amazing and Jericho's promo was great, but I I wasn't quite as overwhelming. Well, neither were you, to be fair, overwhelmingly positive, but I wasn't quite as high on the, the segment. It, just in terms of its structure, the fact that Jericho cut a promo uninterrupted for four or five minutes and then The Rock came back at him and just sort of tore him down for a few minutes and that was the end. I I, I, I felt a bit off. It could have been more of a back and forth and that would have probably done a lot more for Jericho rather than he has all this spiel than The Rock sort of undercuts him and then we move on immediately. Um, But I think you're right in terms of, well, you're both right in terms of the placement as this sort of mid-card role, but definitely with more room to grow into the main event than he would have ever had in WCW most likely. Um, and it, it's just a matter of patience and hoping that they don't mess up that mid card role um, while he's there um, because we've seen it happen before and we know how easily the Fed could just drop the ball on something like this. And then, three months down the line he doesn't feel like such a commodity and he doesn't feel like someone you want to push the main event just because of the way you've mishandled him in the first three four months of his time in the company but um a really really good segment uh uh obviously got over massive with the crowd with a huge pop and everything like that so uh a promising start uh, but we'll have to see sort of air on the side of caution maybe with a bit of patience just how Jericho gets on in the WWF for me more to discuss from the 9th of August uh, as we had a no disqualification false count anywhere triple threat match fret match it, match excuse me in the main event to determine who would face Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF championship at SummerSlam and that match was contested between Triple H the Undertaker and China we had uh, Jesse Ventura on commentary and Shawn Michaels was the special guest referee. The finish of this match came when Austin came down to the ring, grabbed a steel chair, clobbered Hunter, dragged China on top and Shawn counted the three. So we ended the second Raw of the month with China as the number one contender for the WWF title, lined up for a title match with Stone Cold Steve Austin at SummerSlam. So, Eric, we've all seen SummerSlam. We've all seen the Raw after this one. We know what happened with this story. And, that in fact, China does not get her WWF title shot at SummerSlam. But almost without the benefit of hindsight, if you can take yourself back to the 9th of August, what did you make of of this two weeks out from the pay-per-view? China's the number one contender. Yeah, dude, if this had happened, like, even, like, 18 months ago, I would have been like, oh, they're absolutely not going to stick with China to main event SummerSlam. This is going to go away. But the WWF has been so batshit crazy over the last year and a half or so, two years, that I thought, hell, maybe they'll do it. They've got Jesse Ventura as the guest referee, and China's one of their most over people, and they've just gone public. And, like, what a better way to 
signal that you're just going to do crazy stuff that gets ratings and gets people talking than to have an intergender match for the world championship belt at your second biggest show of the year with your second biggest star of all time versus your biggest female star of all time. Like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's, let's see where this goes. And obviously it would be gimmicked and obviously Ventura would be involved and triple H would be involved and who the hell else knows would be involved. Everybody that's ever had the last name McMahon in the history of the planet, but still I thought they would do it just because why the hell not? And I was disappointed that it didn't, didn't take off because I had actually kind of hyped myself up for it. Bob, over to you. What did you make of uh, this move for the WWF putting China in this position? Even though they took it away, it speaks volumes. Sure. I mean, it's a it's a risk, I would say. Uh, it's a shift from the norm. And I think it definitely would give China some credibility in fans' eyes, which maybe is what they're trying to go for. I have a tough time buying into it. Uh you know, the idea of maybe SummerSlam 99, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin defending against China. It just doesn't really ring for me. Um, but I think there's a place for China outside of, you know, a women's division that is arguably a joke at this point, kind of, for the most part, I would say. Obviously, she would be the go-to choice, realistically, to be the women's champion. Um, and maybe she could have a decent match with somebody like Ivory, but I don't, I, I can't really picture her in a, in the main event scene. Uh, and I was personally, and I don't want to sound like I, like a jerk or anything, but I was relatively relieved that it shifted away from, uh, from China and it was more geared towards, uh, you know, the regular culprits of the main event scene. I usually, I mean, I, I usually can appreciate uh, you know, different approaches and maybe trying something different. I just, I think when it comes to professional wrestling, you know, if you had a, let's say you had a girl like Ivory beating Bradshaw, like that would just, it would look weird. You know, it just, it wouldn't, the believability and this desire to make wrestling come across as real um, would probably go out the window which all of us obviously know we've talked about it, and I'm sure anybody listening knows it as well. Could China kick my ass? Absolutely she could, but I'm not a professional wrestler. So could uh, Ivory. So could Ivory. So could Tori. <laughs> so could Debra. You know, anybody that you see on WF television could probably kick my ass. But the point is is that I want to be able to watch something where I know it's a realistic fight and I'm not having my intelligence insulted. That's why I get so frustrated with World Championship Wrestling because I continually get insulted. Um. But I can appreciate the attempt, and I think it was maybe more geared towards you know a rating jump, uh, you know maybe getting that interest and doing something different because then it allows your television to be like you never know what could happen. China could be the WWF World Champion next week, you know you you, you never know. Um, but you know, and considering what happens at the main event, I'll talk about it later. You know, maybe it would have been a better direction to go in considering the crowd reaction that it ended up getting, but. Uh, I can appreciate the attempt, but it just wasn't something that I would probably be interested in seeing. I I just think it works because I don't mean to like get last word here or anything, but like I, I think it's important to realize that like it it could work because it is China and she is not like any other female competitor in the history of wrestling and the way she's being 
positioned and how she's been positioned exclusively with the males and as an equal to the males in almost every respect except for working matches. And so, you know, to say Ivory or even like a Bull Nakano or an Aja Kong or some of those badass chicks who probably could have had realistic matches with uh, with dudes like I think because this is China, it could work. I don't think it could work with anybody else that we've ever seen that I can think of. And it uh, feels sorry. Go on, Bob. Well, I was just gonna say I, I I think that's a very fair point. It's similar. It's similar to Jazz in ECW. You know, I, she's a believe like they're believable people. I I don't want to disregard that. I would just have a very difficult time, I think, especially in, in WWF, with like if China were to pile drive the Undertaker or something, or she were to hit a swing neckbreaker on Kane, you know, or, or whatever the case is, or any of those guys like selling for her. I think it'd be very difficult. And I, again, I, I know it's storytelling, and this isn't you know, real life situations. But there comes a point where, you know, is is Taka Michinoku realistically going to hurt a guy like Ken Shamrock? Like, probably not, you know. But so so China, who probably weighs, I, don't, I know you're not supposed to discuss women's weight, but let's say she weighs, I don't know, 120 pounds. Obviously, she's not. I'm taking the low end just in case she hears this and, and kills me. Uh, you know, you... You have that, and you have somebody like The Undertaker who's weighing 320. I mean, it's just – it's very difficult. If it's a gimmicked match, you know, that's an entirely different approach. I get – I totally get what you're saying, that it's believable. And, you know, Nicole Bass, just from like a physical standpoint, would be maybe in the same realm of that. Obviously, in terms of talent, it's not even remotely close. Um, I think this, I think this type of stuff – is better suited in an environment like ECW because it's so like not structured and there's like no rules really attached to it. Where like if Jazz were to come into WWF and they were to do the same thing, it would just it wouldn't really work for me. And I think with China, if you have her beating guys and all these all of this, you know, happenings, it kind of serves the women's championship and division as kind of you know, borderline pointless because sure she would realistically be dominating the women's championship scene, but she's not even the champion of that, and she's already going there. And then, really, where's the justification of if you were to want to revert back? She's ta- she'd be taking monumental steps backwards where she'd be the women's champion and suddenly feuding with Ivory after, you know, feuding with Mankind and Steve Austin and Triple H, all these other guys. So either you do it like you guys are saying full steam ahead and maybe I would catch on board weeks or months down the line if they were to do it correctly but you cannot under any under really any circumstance remote or you know reverse backwards into the division that she really has not ever been a part of. So for me that's kind of where I was I would be about it. Like she has no connection to the women's division that you have readily available to have her dominate and you have her beating men, you know, you got to make up your mind, I guess, at some point. And again, I, I feel like I'm like already flip-flopping back and forth on this, but I uh, just, when it first happened, I wasn't into it. It could have, it could have changed, you know, if, if they were to continue on with it. But when I first saw it and everything that transpired the weeks later, I just, I wasn't really sold on it. I think if you were going to do it with China, you wouldn't 
start by putting her in a main event at SummerSlam against Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title. You could have her if you if you were going to go full steam ahead, China wrestling men competing for these titles. You would start in the mid card and and sort of treat her like you would any other male wrestler and go from there and maybe have mid card title runs and full on feuds that she's regularly wrestling on pay-per-views against men in singles matches and things like that. And then down the line, you build to this. Is that where you want to go to me? The whole thing, like at, at no point did I really think, okay, yeah, China is going to be in the main event of SummerSlam, but it felt very much like it could have been the case of the Fed testing the waters and sort of seeing the reaction. Because if you do go with China in this capacity, it could be huge. Like, it could be Mm -hmm. exceptional. Um, But it's obviously a very risky move. Um, And if it doesn't come off, it could be quite a negative thing and you don't want Stone Cold Steve Austin in a main event fighting a woman if it's not going to go how you want it to if it if it's going to be perceived badly then you need to steer clear of that so this maybe is sort of an experiment and maybe a few months down the line something they could look at and revisit and maybe for a pay-per-view not quite as big as SummerSlam um, but we'll see. I, I I wasn't immediately against the idea um, when it happened on the 9th of August. But uh, as I previously mentioned, the third roar of the month saw uh, the move to put China in the SummerSlam main event completely reversed. Triple H was not in a good mood as our third roar of the month got underway. He introduces China, the number one contender, and asks her for a match with that distinction on the line. China ponders briefly but declines his challenge. Triple H does not take no for an answer. He tears into the ninth wonder of the world, claiming he made her and he could break her just as easily. China was irate, telling Triple H to give it a shot, as she didn't think he had the balls to beat her. Opening match, Road Dog defeats Al Snow after Bossman interference. Hero Undertaker and Big Show to declare what used to be known as SummerSlam will now be known as Armageddon, and whoever shows up will be hurt. Chris Jericho interrupts, chastising the two monsters for boring the crowd. Undertaker's not amused, saying if Jericho ever interrupts again, it will be the last time. In a match you'll hear more about on the main show, Triple H takes on China to regain his number one contendership. Mankind returns after three months away to cost Hunter the match. Mankind then asks China for a match, but she responds with a low blow but Michaels forces China to face Mankind later tonight. Tess defeats Steve Blackman via DQ and Shane gets involved. Blackman and Shane double-team Test until Ken makes the save. Blackman then lays him out with a kendo stick and Shane beating Tess repeatedly with said stick. Kane and Axpack retain the tag titles against the Acolytes after Kane pins Bradshaw following a chokeslam. Mankind faces China for the number one contendership. Triple H tries to come to ringside causing a distraction, allowing Mankind to knock her out with the mandible claw for the win. Chaos ensues that the three brawl. Shane comes out to make Mankind vs Triple H for the undisputed number one contendership. Shane makes himself referee, so Sean makes it full scout anywhere, no holds barred, points himself circa referee. Mr. Ass revealed his moneymaker had a rash. The Rock comes out bringing a woman who had rubbed oriental leaves on his behind last week. The Rock revealed it had been Poison Ivy. The two men brawl and Billy lays Rock out with a kendo stick 
And in our main event, Mankind beat Triple H ends in the old double pin deal with Sean and Shane both counting to three. The ring announcer reported both men to be the winners and there would be a triple threat match at SummerSlam. So it opened with Triple H attempting to go China into putting her newly won number one contendership on the line. Uh, eventually she agreed to this. During their match later in the night, uh, Hunter had to deal with another ob- obstacle as we had the return of Mankind. Mankind came down, hit Hunter with the ring steps, and China beat Hunter. She picks up the win, ret- retained that main event match at SummerSlam for the WWF title. Afterwards, Mankind asked China for a match for the contendership, but she refused and hit him low. Commission Michaels overruled China and forced her to face Mankind for the title shot at SummerSlam tonight. During that match between China and Mankind, a distraction from Hunter trying to come down to the ring allowed Mankind to get the mandible claw on China for the win. Chaos then ensued as Triple H, China and Mankind all fought with each other and with officials trying to separate them. Shane McMahon came out and ordered a match between Triple H and Mankind in the main event of that episode of Raw to determine the undisputed number one contender for the title at SummerSlam. In that main event match between Hunter and Mankind, both men were declared the winner after a double pin with each man having an arm draped over the other. So they announced that we would be getting a triple threat match at SummerSlam between Austin, Mankind and Hunter. So Eric, a lot to get through here. What did you make of this quite convoluted chopping and changing on the uh, final episode of Raw before SummerSlam? It got kind of cringy after a while. I was just like, Jesus Christ, like tell us what the fucking match is. And it's just, I can't, I can't tell you how many times though, phrase number one contender was spoken on raw in august like it's ridiculous but anyway uh i don't know triple h kind of came off and continues to come off as more of a whiny bitch than a you know dominating heel um hopefully he can make those changes but i don't know it's just getting there and then the, the stupid double can we stop doing double pins on suplexes that are neither guy's finisher and in no means a a move that should end a match. Like I think this came on a back suplex and they both landed and just draped an arm over each other. And there was a double count and it's just like, it's so convoluted to get here instead of just getting there and building to it because now you have a SummerSlam main event that had absolutely no real build between the three guys as it was constructed fully kind of shoehorned in there out of nowhere and uh, triple h really coming off now is the third wheel who just kind of bitched his bitched and moaned his way into the main event so i don't know i thought the build ended up being quite poor for the SummerSlam main event and a bit of a wasted opportunity considering you could have had like they did with tyson a match announced ahead of time and then get all the promo shots with jesse and the competitors in the weeks leading up to the event so that people could know exactly what they were tuning in to watch Jesse Ventura do. I thought it was a hugely missed opportunity. Bob, over to you. I, I 150% agree with everything that Eric just said. Convoluted. I'm confused. I mean, leading into the show, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how many times they've changed the main event in the course of three weeks. And everything that we just talked about with China, and and now with Eric mentioning the lack of, you know, promotion or hype into the into the main event, for arguably your second biggest pay per view of the year, all of really the promotion here felt like it was with China, 
and then you don't have her involved in it. So it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. If you're going to insert her in there, either you go full steam with it and you stay dedicated to it and keep her in that type of positioning or you don't do it. And I feel like, you know, I, I think it would be accurate to say that they were testing the waters to see how this would go. Um, Triple H for sure comes across as a whiny bitch. 100 million percent. You watch the the Raw after the pay-per-view and, and his promo work before, uh, you know, after you know the, the main event there. Complete, like, just whining, crying. You know, it, it doesn't come across as being this ruthless, you know, I want to do whatever it takes to get the time. He's just like, I, oh, I, I wasn't given to me. You know, he's like, it's, it's like he wants to be Harley Race, but he's Harley Race's entitled fucking nephew or something. It's really Entitlement, bad. yeah, exactly. Entitlement's a great word. You know, for, what, two years now, China's been right by his side helping him win, you know, encouraging him and, and whatever, being supportive. If she becomes the number one, number one contender, and Triple H is like, uh, I'm going to fight you for it. I'm not going to let you get your moment of shine, which I thought was hilarious. That's a good heel thing to do. Um, but in terms of the bill for that, that's probably maybe the only good thing that, that Triple H kind of has done for the lead up of this. But yeah, I, I would say it's really, it felt like a WCW type of build, you know, similar to the whole Hummer thing where it's like, you know, what are we doing? Is this match even happening? You come into this and it's like, I don't even know what I'm about to watch. Or, or, you know, why, like, what's the context? What is with, what is the beef? Where, where does Stone Cold even fit into any of this? I, I don't know. I don't know how he kind of is ingrained in this. The whole issue really kind of centers for me between Triple H and China. It seems to be like the justification of the feud for everything that's going on. And she's just at ringside. Uh, I don't really like Mankind being shoehorned into this. I, I don't feel like he's, I feel like where he was earlier in the year, like that might have been is the climax for him, and then ever since, probably like the boiler room situation at Backlash, he's been gradually going down, and I think his appearance and his in-ring work really doesn't justify the insertion that he is in this uh, main event. So I would say the build for the main event for SummerSlam greatly disappointing, uh, which I feel is unacceptable for a pay-per-view that has such a reputation, at least for me, that SummerSlam has. So with that covered, we move on to our review of SummerSlam 1999. Uh, Eric, would you kindly kick us off with the results of the show? Yes, sir. In the opening match, Jeff Jarrett defeated D'Lo Brown to capture both the Intercontinental and European Championships. Uh, The Acolytes uh, won a tag team turmoil match to become the number one contenders to the WWF Tag Team Championship. Uh, Other competitors in that match included Edge and Christian. The New Brood, Midian and Viscera, Draws and Prince Albert, and the Holly Cousins, Hardcore and Crash. Uh, Al Snow then defeated the Big Boss Man to capture the Hardcore Championship. Ivory retained the Women's Championship over Tory. Uh, Ken Shamrock defeated Steve Blackman in a Lion's Den match. Lion's Den Weapons match, excuse me. Uh, Test defeated Shane McMahon in a Greenwich Street fight. Uh, In a match with no stipulations, the Unholy Alliance, Big Show and Undertaker, of course, uh, defeated X-Pac and Kane to capture the WWF Tag Team Championship. The Rock defeated Billy Gunn in a Kiss My Ass match. And in a triple threat for the WWF Championship with Jesse Ventura as the special guest referee, of course, 
Mankind defeated Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H to win the belt. Bob, I'll come to you first. What did you make of SummerSlam? <sighs> well, I, f- I would say in recent years, for me, SummerSlam may have more excitement attached to it than WrestleMania has in, in the last maybe handful of years. Uh, that same level of excitement wasn't really into the picture here for me. And I would say there was some good that transpired, but I think there might have been a little bit too much of the bad for me to uh, to have enjoyed this entire show. Eric, what did you make of it? I feel like this was an overbooked and over-gimmicked match that looked poor on paper and came off as poor in execution. So we'll uh, break down SummerSlam and we'll start with our opening match, which was for the WWF Intercontinental and European titles with D'Lo Brown defending against Double J, Jeff Jarrett. We had a running forearm from D'Lo early on before followed up with a power slam, which got two. Jarrett did his leaping spot right into a spine buster. A suplex by Brown, who was in full control, until he jumped off the ropes and Jarrett slammed him down. A dropkick by Jarrett sends Brown to the floor. They battled on the floor, with D'Lo hitting a clothesline that sent Jarrett over the guardrail into the crowd. Jarrett recovered by sending D'Lo into the ring apron and into the ring post. Uh, Jarrett hits a slam as the camera zoomed in on Deborah again as the fans began to chant, We want puppies. Back to the match, uh, D'Lo was hit a running sit-out powerbomb followed by a tilt-a-well slam. He then followed with a jumping heel kick, a body slam, and a leg drop, which only got two. He hit a back suplex before heading up top, jumping off, but Jarrett moving to avoid the splash. Deborah's on the apron, and Jarrett grabs the guitar, but the but the ref holds Jarrett back as he argued with Deborah. At which point, Mark Henry is in the ring. He grabs the guitar from Jarrett. Mark Henry nails D'Lo in the back with the guitar, and the ref apparently didn't see, or at the very least, hear it allowing Jarrett to get the win after seven minutes of action. Double J is the new Intercontinental and European Champion. Uh, Bob, over to you. What did you make of our opening match? Uh, I I didn't think it was too bad. Uh, I was really digging D'Lo Brown here tonight. I thought his offense felt fresh and exciting compared to the mostly brawling type of action that I've seen the last few weeks. Uh, And I noticed one thing about Jeff Jarrett. Um, When he's in control... The crowd is pretty much quiet. And I understand as a heel, maybe the crowd maybe won't show investment or anything, but usually there's some kind of heat attached to it, whether people are booing him or anything. I mean, it was like stunned silence. And, you know, with the puppies chant and everything, and I kind of realized that Jeff Jarrett's in his position not because he's over with the crowd, it's because of his association with Deborah. All of his heat is relying on Deborah and, and covering up her her breasts, which is just kind of insane to me that that's how, you know, that's what I just realized watching, watching this match. Uh, the finish is, you know, I'm not really a fan of all these, you know, interference things, but it kind of protects D'Lo and I am a fan of D'Lo. So I can appreciate the attempt there. I would prefer D'Lo to stay in the, in the mid card, upper mid card area, working with guys like Jared, instead of maybe going down and working with Mark Henry. Uh, but, yeah, I was bummed. I, I would have maybe kept it on D'Lo. I think D'Lo kind of deserves a uh, 
a decent run here. Uh, but I thought the action was okay as long as Delo was in control of it. I think Jarrett kind of made it more stagnant with what he what uh, he was using here tonight. But uh, the crowd was definitely into Delo, and I think that if Delo had prevailed, it maybe would have kept him more amped up uh, than what kind of happened to them later on in this show. So I would say it was decent, not great, and I don't know if I would have gone with, with Jarrett even with the Henry interference. Eric, over to you. I think in ring, this was uh, the best work match of the night. And I don't think it was particularly close. Um, and, and at the time when I was watching it, this was the opening match. Uh, good in ring match. Delo's awesome. Um, whatever the heat is with Jeff and Deborah, uh, they're, you know, the crowd gets into it, except for when Jarrett's on offense. I think that's 100% accurate. And then the en- the ending was interesting with Henry turning heel and the guitar gimmicks and everything else. But then you realize that almost every other match on this card had this similar structure where you started as a wrestling match or some sort of thing. And then the ring and the characters in the match become, become secondary to whatever shenanigans are happening uh, for a convoluted finish. So I think at the time, I liked it a lot more than looking back on it, thinking, well, that was just one version of the same thing that happened in almost every match of the night. Um, I do. I am uh, optimistic about Mark Henry turning heel. I think when you're a big guy, big young guy with a limited skill set, you kind of have to be a heel because you can just kind of do your thing almost like Bundy in world class. Very poor worker, but you get guys to bounce off him and then you have a main event heel. Uh, who has a, a a good spot in a couple of years, so or at least a credible heel uh, that can be fed to guys coming up the card. So Mark Henry is a heel works for me, and um, everything else about this match worked for me too at the time. It just uh, it was overly symbolic of how the rest of the night was going to go. Yeah, I thought this was a good match. I thought the um, finish was well done, and I agree with your assessment, Eric, of Mark Henry being better placed at this stage as a heel. Um, and I think D'Lo, uh, I agree with you as well, Bob. He looked really good in this match. I really enjoyed his offense. And I think we might, I might be pleasantly surprised by what we get out of Mark Henry from D'Lo. Um, I think it might be more than I would expect going in. And I mean, the credit would come from, uh, Adilo on that one. But yeah, I thought this was a perfectly fine opener, but I do uh, understand Eric, your uh, point about how maybe the goodwill towards this match became slightly dampened uh, as the show went on. So our second match was Tag Team Turmoil uh, to decide the number one contender, so we have more of that, of the WWF Tag Titles. So we started things off with Edge and Christian taking on the new brood, uh, Matt and Jeff Hardy. Um, So the format of this match, just sort of single elimination uh, gauntlet. So when a team loses, a new team comes in and eventually we'll have one team standing. Uh, so we start things off with a double hit toss from Edge and Christian on Matt Hardy. Gangrel hits a cheap shot to Christian while Jeff distracted the ref, leading Matt getting a roll-up, which just gets two. A double-team face slam from the Hardys on Christian. Jeff hits a springboard moon springboard moonsault apologies, uh, for two on Christian. Matt hits a suplex and Jeff goes up top, uh, hitting a senton bomb on Christian, but Edge break fi- breaks up the pin. Christian hits a uh, double reverse DDT uh, on both 
Hardys, uh, leading to a hot tag to Edge to a good pop. Edge was on fire until Matt managed to dump him to the floor. Edge and Jeff did a spot where both guys ran into the barricade, leading to Edge hitting a spear on Jeff. Christian hit a crossbody block on Gangrel on the floor, and Matt hit a moonsault off the top to Christian on the floor. Edge is back in the ring, and he hits a face-first slam on Matt when Matt was on his shoulders. Christian jumps off the top rope, hits an elbow drop, and pins Matt to eliminate the new brood after around seven minutes. Um, No need to go into too much detail here, but Eric, I'll come to you first. What did you make of this opening uh, opening contest between the two teams? No, it was the best segment of this uh, tag team turmoil event. And, uh, you know, I, I would like to see more of the new brood versus Edge and Christian. Uh, Bob, over to you. Uh, 100% agree with everything Eric said. As soon as that elimination occurred and I, uh, you know, in hindsight realized who was in the remaining of the match, uh, I knew that was as good as it was probably going to get for uh, the turmoil contest and i i think that the new brood or the hardy boys against edge and christian you know if these if these guys were to get 10 to 15 minutes on tv or pay-per-view uh it's probably going to be a match that we would talk about and maybe make these guys into bigger deals than what they are right now yeah completely agree with both of you the best bit of the match uh exciting stuff between two teams that really do have a lot of potential and when when i talk about the the division being in a much better place it's basically these four guys um but without these four guys being in this position uh well a year ago or even eight nine months ago um the tag division really did struggle in 98 um so hopefully these guys get to carry on and go on to fulfill that potential in the tag division next out as the match continues we have viscera and midian so Viscera sent Christian into the turbuckle before hitting a Samoan drop. Midian tagged in. He did some choking on Christian and followed with a knee drop. Midian went for a move of the middle ropes, but Christian avoided it and tagged in Edge. Running clothesline from Edge followed by back body drop. He puts Midian in the way of a Viscera splash. Double slow shoulder block by Edge and Christian sent Viscera to the floor. And Edge got the win after around two minutes with a spear. We move straight on to our next contest in the Tag Team Turmoil match as Droz and Prince Albert are out. They were also dispatched pretty quickly and comfortably by Edge and Christian in uh, less than two minutes, even quicker than um, Viscera and Midian after Edge pinned Albert. Next out, we have the Acolytes. So we're back to having more of a contest. Bradshaw hits a boot on Edge in the ring while Farouk goes after Christian on the floor. Edge goes up top and he connects with a missile dropkick. Edge did some corner punches, so Bradshaw did a powerbomb out of the corner, which got two. A spinning heel kick by Edge on Farouk was pretty nice. Bradshaw dead Christian while he was on the apron before hitting a back suplex for a two count. A backbreaker by Farouk also got a two, and Farouk followed this up by hitting a spine buster that looked very impressive. A dominator attempt by Farouk, but was avoided by Edge as he slipped out of it, managing to hit a DDT. Christian tagged in with drop kicks for both heels and a double clothesline with Edge on Farouk. Edge drop kick on Bradshaw before Christian went up top and Farouk tripped him, and Chris, but Christian managed to get a great near fall with a tornado DDT on Bradshaw. Edge slammed Christian onto Bradshaw 
as the Holly Cousins ran down to the ring. Uh, Christian hit a running splash on Farouk in the corner, and when Christian turned around, he walked straight into a clothesline from hell for the pin, as Farouk held Edge back to prevent him from breaking up the pin. Uh, Bob, over to you. Um, a little sort of summary on mainly the Acolytes versus Edge and Christian, but the last three falls we've seen. Well, there was a noticeable dip, I, I would say, in quality of what was going on. I didn't hate it. I, I can't say that I hate the whole turmoil thing. I, I do believe though the first seven minutes or so uh, really made it as a, as a highlight. Uh, I like the accolades. I think that they're a good team. I think that, that they work very well with guys like the new brood and edge and Christian that makes them just like more dominant uh, contenders. And I think that they were maybe the right choice to win this because I kind of have, you know, I kind of believe in them more than any of the t- other teams involved in this because I, I believe it was announced that it was a uh, the winner would get a tag title match the following night on Raw, and compared to the other two uh, potential, you know whether it be the Unholy Alliance or Kane and Xbox, I think the accolades kind of give you more doubt as to who could have prevailed. So I, I did I did like all that. Uh, one thing I didn't really like about the match, and it's really just kind of it doesn't have to do anything with um, action wise or uh, you know quality of the action. Uh, it was the mistimed uh, roll-in, I think it was by Hardcore Holly. He just kind of took me out of the the match a little bit towards the end because uh, he mistimed it by about two minutes. He was supposed to, he was trying to slide in before he realized it was the finish or whatever. Uh, so that little thing kind of bothered me. And I, one other thing I want to point out is that I think Edge and Christian, that their popularity has grown significant since they kind of shed the whole brood gimmick which makes me wonder about matt and jeff uh i think there's a level of not caring about gangrel and the brood in general that whole persona so it seems like once you shed that maybe borderline ridiculous angle or or, uh, character i should say that maybe that there's more investment from the crowd so i'm hoping that maybe uh matt and jeff aren't kind of stuck in that spot for too long because as we've already mentioned, or at least I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, the seven minute spurt that they had with edging Christian really shows what these guys are capable of, of doing. And uh, I would hope that a character that kind of takes away, you know, any kind of interest or excitement isn't kept on them for too long. But uh, overall, I, I would say it was a worthwhile turmoil uh, and, and you know, in, in the weak teams like Midi and Viscera and Draz and, and, and Albert, they weren't in there for a significant amount of time. So they kept it to the, the main core of their four tag teams that are, are really worthwhile uh, at this point. So I thought it was a, it was an effective follow up from the opener. Yeah, Eric, over to you. Kind of, there was ever an argument that we need to bring back managers that have stables. It's some of the guys in this match. I mean, Midian, Viscera, Draws, Albert. Um, some of those guys would be a lot more effective managed by Harvey Whippleman or Slick. You know what I'm saying? So maybe give that a, a whirl because those four guys could not have had less of a meaningful impact in this match other than to show up and be fodder for teams on the rise, which is not necessarily what you want to see on pay-per-view or glorified squash, match, squash matches. Uh, and I think the Acolytes are probably the most credible tag team in the Fed right now. 
Um, Edge and Christian are obviously on the rise. And the new brew, the Hardy Boys, whatever you want to call them, uh, they're kind of simmering in the background. But as Bob said, they're maybe purposefully being held back or being built to break out. I think being managed by Gangrel and having some type of gimmick is an upgrade from Michael Hayes. Um, but still, uh, I agree that they need to kind of have the shackles let off of them eventually to be credible. Um, but yeah, I think the Acolytes uh, are fine. And having a comedy team like the Holly Brothers and seeing Sparky Plug finally have a meaningful role um, is, is cool. So, But yeah, the Acolytes are, are badasses, and I think that they're probably the best choice to uh, come out on top in this match. Um, so we, uh, moving on from that last fall with edge and Christian being eliminated, we are down to our final little bit of these tag team tournament contest. Hardcore crash Holly are out. Hardcore, uh, goes after Bradshaw on the floor. Uh, but Farouk hits shoulder block on crash in the ring. Hardcore sends Bradshaw into the ring post as Farouk hits the dominator on crash inside. Hardcore then goes inside the ring after Farouk, and Bradshaw follows him, Acolytes hitting a double shoulder block on Hardcore Holly. Crash tags himself in, and Farouk hits a clothesline on him and dumps him to the floor. Bradshaw hits a neck breaker on Crash, and uh, Farouk eventually picks up the win for the Acolytes uh, after just under three minutes of action with a spine buster on Hardcore Holly. So the Acolytes are the number one contender for the tag team titles, will receive their match uh for the belts the following night on raw so i think we've had quite uh, a number uh, quite a discussion about that match certainly as much as it warrants on this show um definitely the uh stars of the match were for me edging christian and i think uh, your comments from the both of you certainly align with that and uh, i definitely agree with what you say bob um the shedding of that gimmick uh, has has uh done a lot for them in a short amount of time and it does make me like you rightly point out worry for the future of the new brood in matt and jeff uh next up we have a promo segment as road dog comes down to the ring in his street clothes he vows that he would be getting his hardcore title back in the near future we have chris jericho's countdown clock play and jericho makes his first appearance on a wwf pay-per-view um, he appears on stage uh, near the entrance area. So he, Jericho says he's disappointed because WF put this pay-per-view called SummerSlam and the su- Summer Sham, and people were conned into wasting their money. He mentioned the, the list of boring matches while noting the worst of which is standing in the ring right now. Jericho told Road Dog that nobody cares about him, and he ripped on him for his stupid clothing and his Stevie Wonder hairstyle. Jericho noted that DX sucks and Road Dog sucks, and now that Jericho is there, he will save the WWF. Road Dog and the others in the locker room will never get to bore these people again. Roadie's reply, quite succinct, why don't you shut up, bitch? Road Dog says he's got two words for him, suck it, and Road Dog's music ends the segment. Uh, Eric, over to you, what did you make of Jericho's first appearance on a WWF pay-per-view. I think it kind of confirms what ultimately became of Jericho by the end of the month is that he's going to be kind of a mid-card smarmy uh, jerk who's going to harass anybody, really, and then avoid getting physical. So 
like I said, a lateral move from where he was in WCW and with his potential not yet decided. Bob, your thoughts on this little promo segment? Uh, disappointed that he was uh, his first pay-per-view appearance is just a war of words with Rodog. Rodog didn't really seem all that prepared. I'm just saying, how about you just shut up, bitch? It was just kind of a weak, I felt like, uh, interaction. Jericho shouldn't be a lower mid-card guy feuding with a guy that wants the hardcore championship. I mean, he should be involved with something more substantial than that. Uh, it was nice to see him there, I guess, but in terms of the interaction with Rodak, I kind of was indifferent about it. It didn't uh, get me interested or excited for either one, to be honest with you. Yeah, it didn't really feel like a, a big deal. It felt like a few minutes, uh, a way to kill a few minutes, excuse me, on a on a pay-per-view just to get Jericho on the show. I don't think the material was particularly good. Um I, I thought Jericho delivered it very well, but I, I mean, it didn't stand out uh, in any way. And generally speaking, I mean, he, he's been there a few weeks now. I, I I don't think there was a reason you couldn't have Jericho in a sort of showcase match for him on this show. Um, just even if it was a lower mid-card guy, just put Jericho in there and have him quite handily beat someone. I think that does more for him than this five minutes. And we certainly could have trimmed some t- uh, trimmed some time elsewhere on the card and made room for that. Um, I don't I don't think it would have been hard to pull off. So um, a fairly underwhelming first WWF pay per view appearance for Chris Jericho in my book. Next up, we have the match for the WWF Hardcore Title with the Big Boss Man defending his championship against Al Snow. Road Dog had a microphone and he followed the wrestlers backstage as they brawled. This was a very typical WWF hardcore title match. And as as is standard with me, really, I'm not going to break it down into too much detail. So here are a few bits and pieces from the match. Um, they ended up brawling outside of the building. They fought across the street. Uh, Al Snow tried to pin the boss man on the sidewalk and got two. Uh, they were in a bar. They fought their way into a bar and some drunk uh, with some drunks outside. Into the bar, continuing to brawl. The, the the bar patrons were really into this. They were chanting "head." Um, they hit each other in the back with pool sticks and uh, traded shots with beer bottles. A fan had a chain that Al Snow used to choke the boss man. Snow went up to the bar and jumped off with a moonsault, but boss man moved out of the way, so Snow went for a table. Snow grabbed two pool balls and hit uh, boss man low with them, and he ended up picking up the win by pinning the boss man on a pool table to win the match. Uh, Bob, standard hardcore title procedure here for the WWF? Yeah. I mean, nothing in the ring. It's all out in the all outside the arena, really. If I again, I I think I've mentioned this before. Um, if I'm a guy in the crowd watching this stuff, I'm gonna be really annoyed because you're you're paying it to not watch it on a jumbo screen, and that's what they or a titantron, whatever you want to call it. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's you know nothing of substance. It's just guys hitting each other with whatever they could find. I can deal with it. It doesn't go on terribly long. 
I didn't really like the involvement of Rodog as walking commentary. He provided pretty much nothing. It seemed as if Lawler and Ross had to like remind him to say something or to talk. So it kind of just took away from the whole atmosphere and the whole whatever they were trying to do between Bossman and Snow. So for an undercard, you know, garbage match, I guess, it's exactly what you would expect from the WBF. And that's what we got. Eric, over to you. God, if I'm sitting in the crowd between the time this match starts and the time we get to the right before the Greenwich Street fight in about 45 minutes, <laughs> it's absolute death. Absolute death. I think matches like this do nothing for your pay-per-view audience because those crowds need to stay hot and they need to stay active in order to make the show come off effective. And having this and having gimmick matches that just do not take place in the ring where everybody can see, I think it's just a bad decision. These are fine for Raw. Now that they have SmackDown, this is fine time filler to fill up all the extra hours that they have. But gosh, every time one of these hardcore matches appears on a pay-per-view, it's just an absolute death spot and it turns the crowd into zombies for some period of time. So we move on and next up we have Ivory defending her WWF women's title against Tori. The match is underway and Tori is very aggressive early, hitting a power slam. Ivory sends Tori into the ring post on the outside. Back in the ring, back elbow by Ivory. Looks nice, and Tori comes back with two suplexes and a drop kick, which gets two. Irie takes control of the match by grabbing the hair and hitting a bulldog-type move, uh, to put it generously. A swing by Ivory into a slam, which gets two. They mess up some uh, corner whip spot, and Tori, uh, Tori comes out of it by hitting a spear. Tori grabs Ivory around the waist, leading to a slam across the ring. Tori hits a cross-body block off the second rope for a two-count, which gets absolutely no reaction. Tori hits a sunset flip. Ivory sits on top of her, and that was likely the finish, but they mess it up, and Ivory seems to slip slash roll off. Ivory then sits back on the cover, and that is the win in less than four minutes. Bob, what did you make of this women's match? Well, it was a match. It happened. I don't really care about it. It could have been maybe good. Did I really pay attention to it? Admittedly, no. As what Eric just kind of mentioned, the next, including the final, the previous match, the next 45 minutes is pretty um, lackluster. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know the or understand any of the context into this match, to be quite honest with you. Women's wrestling is very difficult for me to... Uh, be invested in and uh, that was the case here so i I really don't have uh anything negative or or positive to happen it was a four minute match it's not gonna really bother me not really a fan of tori i will note that but uh hopefully ivory can get some actual women wrestlers to uh, defend i guess that that'd be nice for her i would assume eric what did you make of the match well, uh, before I give my comments, Bob, a little bit of a lesson on women's wrestling for you. Tori, uh, her real name is Terry, I think it's Pock, or it could be Poach, uh, is from my hometown of Portland, Oregon. Uh, she was trained by Brad Ringens and Roddy Piper, and she's been wrestling since 1988. So there you go. Um, this match is uh, on one end of the spectrum of matches under four minutes. And on the other end of that spectrum, 
way down the line is the Owen Hart versus one, two, three kid match from King of the ring, 1994. The only thing those two things have in common, those two matches are that they took place on WWF programming. This, and I'm saying this so that Rory catches it when he takes notes on the show, please time stamp this for our uh, recollection for worst match of the year at the year end review. Cause this was horrible. It was a, as about as horrible as a four-minute match can be, and that's, uh, I think, all I have to say about that one. So I'm really glad I didn't really pay attention to it then. Yeah, I mean, it was a wise choice. All um, right, excellent. Good move. Moving on, uh, we have a Lion's Den weapons match between Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman, which is sure to pick up the pace. <clears throat> no, Steve Blackman, there's something you have to say. You bet your ass there is. Shamrock... It's real simple. I'll step into your world, the lion's den, if you step into mine. And that is weapons all around the cage. And anyone bad enough to get one can use it. So, this way this thing's got to end, one way or another! Blackman hits Shamrock in the leg with some nunchucks early before choking him with the weapon. Shamrock gets a takedown into an armbar before whipping Blackman into the cage. Shamrock grabs the kendo stick that's above the cage, but Blackman fights back before Shamrock has a chance to use it. Blackman grabs some sticks and hits some repeated shots till Shamrock comes back with an elbow before hitting a back suplex. Blackman regains control of the match, hitting a DDT, but both men are down. When they're up and trading moves till Shamrock manages to take control hitting the belly to belly suplex and follows it with some kendo stick shots Shamrock then follows it up with two hard shots to the head which knock Blackman out and Ken Shamrock is declared the winner Eric what did you make of the Lions Den well I'm going to take this a little bit uh, to a world of an analogy so in the law there's this thing called hearsay and hearsay is something that's said outside of the court uh, that's then repeated in court to prove the truth of the matter asserted. And in order to get hearsay statements with some exemptions admitted into evidence, you have to solve each level of the hearsay. And so if there's hearsay within hearsay within hearsay, you have to solve all three levels before it can potentially be admitted into evidence. This match had triple gimmick. And if you take gimmick as hearsay and getting the match in the ring is evidence. This was a triple gimmick match. You had wrestlers, each with two gimmicks, ironically, fake fighters that make them less realistic than being real fighters, on top of the Lion's Den gimmick, which is already a gimmick that takes it physically out of the ring, and weapons, which is a gimmick on top of a gimmick with two gimmicks. So in order to get this match in the ring, to have a realistic wrestling match, I have to solve three, arguably four, levels of gimmick. This was not an enjoyable match, and it is far from what I want to see on a fucking wrestling show. Bob, uh, over to you. <laughs> uh, well, unfortunately, this was a match I did pay attention to, and also, unfortunately, it was double the amount of time that Ivory and Tori wrestled for. Uh, I did not care for any of it. Uh, you're very limited as to what you can do in the lion's den. Sure, there's weapons, but there's only so much you can do with that. And there's just many things that are wrong with this match, I feel like, for there to be any interest. Number one, it's in the corner of the arena where maybe, I don't know, 50 people can get an actual visual look of it. So once again, for the second match, 
on this show, people are probably relying on the freaking screen to see what is going on. Secondly, I I really like Ken Shamrock. I liked him last year with his stuff with The Rock and all that stuff. You know, the amount of times that this guy – and this could go for probably dozens of, of WWF guys. The amount of times that he's gone from being a badass face to – you know, a heel, you know, back to a face and then underlining heel or whatever. It just gets to a point where, you know, should I even like this guy? I don't even know anymore. So I'm feeling my investment or interest in Ken Shamrock is uh, is waning. You know, when he wins the match and he climbs the top and he's just doing his usual, you know, I'm nuts type of reaction. And it just falls flat. I think Ken Shamrock is a viable character on WF te- on WF television has really met his his end and you know there was various things like Steve Blackman here I think there was like at least one or two times realistically that he could have won the match and then he just didn't do it and, and I think it was really leading into the finish where Shamrock just proceeded to hit his suplex or whatever it was to uh to end up winning the match I, I this is just not good material to have on a paid a paid show, like a, a pay-per-view show. It's just – it's really frustrating, you know, especially when you consider the, the previous two matches. Um, this is this pay-per-view is really starting to, fill, to feel like a filler show, arguably. And this is supposed to be, you know, a, a, your, your summer spectacular, your biggest show of the summer, and it's, it's really falling flat. Uh, on the undercard part, at least. So, hopefully, uh, you know, either they take Shamrock off television for a little while, or maybe he just needs to change his scenery. Maybe he needs to get his face knocked off again in UFC for a little bit. I don't know. But uh, right now in the WWF, I, I don't think Shamrock has uh, really anything to offer to justify spending TV time on him at this point in time. So, definitely didn't like. I don't like the concept of the Lions Den to begin with. Uh, just put a cage in there or something in the ring. Just focus on the ring for Christ's sakes. But yeah, I, I, I 100% was, was not into this. Yeah, I agree with uh, both of you. And um, I mean, this very much goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, this match was not as good as the uh, lines then match between Shamrock and Owen earlier, uh, one year earlier. Like there's, there's, <laughs> Blackman is not the worker that Owen was, um, and this match was not as good as that match. It was quite ponderous as well, and I know it's a weapons match, but it felt slow. Like, all the spots felt slow. The action felt slow. It felt like it dragged, and it was only seven, eight minutes. Um, Yeah, uh, we're not doing too well. Well, SummerSlam's not going too well so far. Hopefully our next match can pick it up. Um, we move on to a Greenwich street fight between Shane McMahon and test. So test gets us started sending Shane into the ring steps, sending him over the barricade into the crowd. Shane tries to come back with a diving attack, but test catches him with a power slam. The posse are at ringside. They're on a couch drinking champagne. Test shoves them before tossing Shane onto them at ringside. Stephanie's shown watching backstage, looking on, looking very happy. 
the posse join in the fight by attacking Test, and Shane hits Test in the face with do not enter street sign. Uh, Shane got a two count in the ring before going up top, but Test moving and Shane hitting the mat hard. Shane tried a leapfrog, but Test caught him and hit a powerbomb. Rodney distracted the ref, which led to the delayed two count for Test. So Shane, then Shane followed up by ducking a kick from Test that led to Test colliding with the big boot with the referee. Body slammed by Test on the floor, and the posse guys then take advantage uh, by going after Test outside the ring. Uh, the posse cleared off the Spanish announce table, put Test on it, and after uh, put Test on it after they beat on him. Shane went to the top rope and jumped up. Jumped off, connecting with an elbow drop off the top rope through the announce table, which it has to be said was very impressive. The posse roll Test and Shane back into the ring. Shane crawls into the cover but only gets two. Gas went in the ring and he hits Shane with the street sign. Test covers but abs pull Shane out of the ring. Rodney's in the ring and he hits Test in the head with his cast while the referee's looking at abs. So that leads to another two count. At this point, the duo of Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe run to ringside. They lay into Gas and Rodney using street signs. Tess hits a boot to a chair to the face of Abs and takes him out. Shane hits the ring post after a charge and Tess follows with a pump handle slam. Tess goes up top and he hits an elbow drop for the pinfall win. Bob, what did you make of this? <laughs> okay. I really think Stephanie should have been should have been at ringside just so that Shane could get that do not enter sign, put it on her chest or whatever, and then hit Tess with it just to play on words because that's the whole point of this is that he doesn't want her to be messing around with Tess. This whole angle for me is just weird. I I have a sister, and I don't think under any circumstance ever have I been like, you're not going to sleep with my sister and we're going to fight about it. Uh, I have none of my business. I don't worry about any of it. The amount of interest and dedication that Shane McMahon has put on this whole situation to make sure that his, his sister does not get a boyfriend in the form of test is a little off-putting and just really, truly bizarre to me. Um, the match is good I, for a street fight. It's it's okay. It's I would say actually, yeah, good to really good. Um it was, you know, at ringside or in the ring, so the crowd could actually, uh, you know, react to it. That was nice. Um, and, you know, the whole, uh, you know, elbow spots and uh, interaction with the Mean Street Posse, I thought it was, you know, enough high spots to keep me invested in it. Didn't feel like it went on forever, so that was a, a nice change of pace considering the other few matches that we've dealt with. Uh, this could be a, a big moment for Test. I think Test has potential to be a, de- a decent babyface. Um, I don't know about like a main event guy, but he has a good look. He's got some ability. The pump handle slam when he whips it around tends to look pretty good. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed the match. The angle, though, that's attached to it is just really, really weird to me. Uh, and that's really my main takeaway for Test and Shane. And like the following night, I'll, I'll just skip ahead a little bit, the following night in their interaction on Raw. It's just like, dude, this, you know, mind your own business for, for once in your life. Just don't really worry about what your sister's doing in her personal life. So, I don't know. It, it was a good match. Angle, though, a little too weird for me. 
Eric, over to you. I don't see Test uh, in this spot. I don't. I don't know. He's as dull as dirt uh, in his promos, and he always looks like a deer in the headlights when the cameras shine brightest. So uh, I think if they can build him into something and not have him cut these, you know, weird "I love you, Stephanie" promos, all the better for him. It doesn't seem like that's the direction that he's going. So I'm a little bit concerned. Uh, and also said for this match, we did not get back in the ring, but we did better. This was a pretty good gimmicky spot fest that was well executed. Um, I think that this match kind of symbolizes, uh, you know, the best of what this type of match can look like. You have to heavily gimmick it because Shane's not a wrestler. Test is, hasn't been in the business that long as far as I know. Um, and it's, they've got a long spot to fill here. This is a, one of the upper card matches that was a, draw to this show so it has to come off well and it did i think it was well executed well planned i i strongly suspect this was not called in the ring uh by and large due to the amount of stuff that was going on at all times and the lack of actual wrestling that occurred but still i think the mean street posse has a role i i pop for patterson and briscoe how could you not um and so i think it's all i think it was all good I just I don't buy test in the spot. And then everything Bob said about the storyline that got us here is true. It's just kind of weird and creepy. Um, So if you take the match in a vacuum, it's good. Overall, I think the match exceeded what it should have been, uh, considering the performers and the storyline that it was built from. Yeah, I thought this was a fun match in a in front of a very investive crowd. Um. It definitely exceeded my expectations. When you see Shane McMahon versus Test on paper, um, I didn't think I'd enjoy it anywhere near as much as I did. But uh, that's very specifically the match when you take, as you both rightly point out, the story. Um, yeah, there are some issues. Um, and uh, I definitely agree with the assessment of not really seeing... Test's future away from this storyline and where he could potentially fit in um but uh, on this night in this match i enjoyed uh both guys uh and i enjoyed uh the match in general i thought i thought it was um some good stuff and one of the highlights of the uh of the pay-per-view so far moving on to our wwf tag title match as we have x-pac and kane defending against the undertaker and big show the heels were in control early working over x-pac until he managed to get the tag to kane nailing taker with a clothesline which sent him out of the ring big show went after kane on the floor but gets hit with a boot kane hits a clothesline off the top on taker who fights back with a ddt show tags in works over kane with some strikes before hitting a power slam which got a two count taker tags in and him and Kane slug away at each other until we get a double clothesline spot. X-Pac gets the tag, and the crowd pop big as he hits a spin kick on Taker. Taker sends him outside, and Show works him over out there. Big Show and Kane brawl around the ring as Taker works over X-Pac back inside. Taker drives X-Pac into the ring post and tags in Show. Show misses an elbow drop, but manages to lock on a bear hug, which X-Pac breaks out of by biting Show on the nose. Show hits a slam for two, and Kane makes the save. Taker grabbed Kane, and X-Pac hit a low blow 
kick to take up right in front of the ref, who just did nothing. Hot tag, hot tag to Kane with a clothesline in the corner on Taker and a clothesline for show. Uh, and X-Pac hit a spinning heel kick, sending Taker to the floor. X-Pac drives Taker into the ring post as Kane works over Big Show in the ring. X-Pac then tags himself in and hits a Bronco Buster on Big Show. Big Show manages to make the tag to Taker, who tags in, hitting X-Pac with a tombstone, Kane being too slow to make the save. One, two, three. We have new WWF Tag Team Champions. Bob, over to you. Uh, I actually liked this, uh, which I wasn't anticipating liking at all. I, I kind of like the dynamic between Big Show and Undertaker. I like that Undertaker gets extremely frustrated with Big Show. It's almost like, hey, man, you're seven foot, 505 pounds. Like You should be able to freaking beat X-Pac. What are you doing? Like I, I'm liking that interaction because it could easily set up a Big Show face turn down the line, which would already be like his ninth turn uh, already. And it's been about six months. So that will, that might, I could see that being the direction that it goes in. I thought X-Pac did really well in his role. Uh, Obviously the smallest guy in the ring. He got a few moments of shine on guys like show and taker. The interaction with those guys is only going to help X-Pac in this type of environment. Uh, The finish doesn't bother me. Um, you know, Pac, again, being the smallest guy, is expected to take the loss. And I think throughout his career, X-Pac, whether it's been as 1-2-3 kid or as uh, as 6 in WCW, that you know, it doesn't hurt him to take a loss because of his offense and his ability to do exciting things. The crowd is just kind of always kind of find a way to gravitate towards him in a positive light. So no matter the situation... Uh, he seems to be able to maintain a level of interest with the fans. So I thought it was a, a pretty good tag title match, uh, you know, especially coming off of the test Shane match. It seems like maybe we're trending in the right word in the right direction, at least for myself. So uh, I I didn't mind it at all. And uh, hopefully they can maybe drag out Taker and show a, a little longer uh, as tag champions. I know they have a tendency of, of flipping titles pretty quickly. So uh, a, su- a surprising tag title match for me. Eric, your thoughts? Boy, I I did not enjoy this match. Um, Had X-Pac not been there to pretty much do everything that needed to be done, uh, this would have been an an incredibly poor match. Um, Frankly, I don't know if there's anybody else that could have made this match anything close to what it even became other than X-Pac and a couple other guys. Because this was just three big dudes slowly moving around the ring and not really selling all that much. Except for, ironically, Big Show, who's the last guy in this ring who shouldn't be selling right now. So, I, yeah, I think X-Pac uh, shines and it's always good for him to get a little bit of rub to remind everybody that he is, uh, you know, in there for a reason. And he does belong uh, in the same echelon as those guys he's in the ring with. But, no, I don't think this was a very good match at all. And I'm also not, and they do that all the time a fan of using the tag titles as a, a way, as a thing, as a MacGuffin to start a, an upper card feud. We've seen it with Austin and Sean. We saw it with Austin and Foley. I mean, it's been a plague that the tag titles get relegated to uh, becoming a, a mechanism for a storyline that ultimately will have nothing to do with the tag team titles, um, especially when, as we've discussed, we do have a pretty good little tag team division uh, coming to the forefront. And it's a shame that none of those teams are actually going to be able to 
attain those belts. At least it seemed that way as of the result uh, of SummerSlam uh, because of the Undertaker and Big Show. And who's going to beat the Undertaker and Big Show, right? But that means that the Undertaker and Big Show are going to have to break up. And that means we're going to have to get an Undertaker versus Big Show match, which is about the last thing that I want to spend money on because it's unbelievable to me that somehow Big Show has regressed from WCW where he was not trained as a wrestler really at all. So I think there's a lot of problems here with this Big Show and Undertaker union as cool as it looks as they're walking down the aisle. And that's undeniable that it looks awesome. But in the ring, I'm not too optimistic about it. Uh, I completely agree with you, Eric. Um, I I'm not a fan of using the tag titles um, to basically segue into a main event or different singles feud. Um, I think a, your tag divisions worth more than that, quite frankly. And uh, the WWF's one hasn't been worth more than that, but it could be, um, and it certainly won't be if stuff like this is happening all of the time. Um, and I agree, the idea of a Taker Big Show match is way, way down there on the list of things I want to see. But um, I was much higher on the match than you were. I, obviously, 99% of that is due to the work X-Pac did, but I thought this was a decent little tag match, and X-Pac obviously worked incredibly hard to get Taker and show over, and... I, I thought to to a degree he was successful in that as uh, and uh, I mean like you say it's just a testament to him getting a little shine but I I thought um, Expat was generally carried this into what was a decent tag match and certainly uh, from what we've seen on the card so far one of the better matches of the evening so far but maybe that says more about SummerSlam in general than it does uh, the quality of this tag match. Moving on to more quality, uh, quality stipulations at the very least. We have a kiss my ass match between The Rock and Billy Gunn. So we're underway and they brawl up the aisle uh, from the off. Billy sending Rocky into the guardrail, hitting a clothesline. Rocky returns the favour, sending Billy into the barricade and then into the side of the lion's den cage. Eventually, they head back to ringside with Rocky spitting water in Billy's face. In the ring, Gunn hits a neckbreaker and a bulldog for two. Rock starts his comeback after a DDT, follows with a Samoan drop, which also gets two. Rock looks for the rock bottom, but Billy slips out the attempt and hits a famouser. Billy taunted a larger lady uh, in the crowd and told her that to get into the ring. Uh, the rock shoved Billy's face into her behind, following with a rock bottom and finally the people's elbow for the pinfall win after 10 minutes. That wasn't the longest review, um, but the match did go 10 minutes, and that's about all that happened. Uh, Eric, over to you. Well, to clarify, Billy brought that large lady down to the ring uh, with him, uh, but that does not excuse the just incredible amount of, like, all types of shaming that could have gone on in this match. Like, my fucking goodness, like, how many groups were they trying to offend by having this match? And, like... I probably wouldn't want to be doing that if I'm going public to tune in and see Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross talking about whether that large lady's wearing a thong and how gross it's going to be when somebody's head. It's like, it's just like, like fuck off with that. And then you have the match itself with that gimmick with that lady. And the worst type of match to have is one that actively harms both competitors in terms of where they are and where we're trying to get with them. 
you've got The Rock, who could be the biggest star in the company the minute they essentially take the reins off him. And then you've got Billy Gunn, who's a guy that they've been trying to actively push since I was in, you know, since I was in the womb, it seems like. And now you've got both of them in a match with a horrific gimmick that belongs nowhere near the top of the card and belongs nowhere on a wrestling card as I see it whatsoever. And then you've got an impossible situation where you have to job out the guy you've been recently trying to push, or you have to job out the guy who could be your biggest star uh, in sort of a sacrifice for this guy you're trying to push. Nobody was going to win this match. Nobody was getting over and both were actively harmed in a match that had just a horrifically uninformed and, and just disastrous stipulation. Like, fuck this shit. This was horrible. Bob, over to you. I think it's absolutely hilarious that this match is arguably in the co-main event spot or the semi-main event. It was a really bad wrestling match. Uh, the attempt here with Mr. Ass, they're not even really calling him Billy Gunn, it seems, anymore. It's just strictly Mr. Ass. is kind of like the Val Venus type of uh, situation here where maybe... You know, you you can't put Venus in the in the top spot because his name rhymes with penis. Well, do you really want to have a guy like Mr. S on your marquee at any point? The answer to that is probably no. Uh, another thing that kind of bugs me is like the King of the Ring has been seen over the years to elevate guys uh, or make them a bigger deal. And I think in recent years, the only time that it didn't really work at all uh, was in '95 with with Mabel, which you know he has a soft spot in my heart. But in the uh, the grand scheme of things, it, it didn't work. I, I always like when the King of the Ring winner kind of plays up the King of the Ring, you know, throne or, or, or that persona. And uh, I don't really recall a time at all that Mr. Ass has kind of embraced that. Uh, it's almost kind of been like a forgotten thing that he won that. Uh it's it's a failed push, I think. I think Billy Gunn does have a place on a card. It's certainly not in this spot. Uh, this is an enormous waste of The Rock. As Eric mentioned, this guy is arguably your top, you know, top babyface or on the verge of it for sure. And you have him thrown in there with a guy that is at best a mid card. Uh, should definitely be in a tag team with a guy like Road Dog or something. Uh, it, if if Rock would have lost here, it would have been monumentally bad. Um, I think when you see the you know the next night on Raw, it's almost as, as if maybe the you know the WWF kind of realized that maybe we shouldn't be having uh, Billy Gunn in this type of spot, and they've reverted back pretty quickly, I would say, uh, for for what he's been doing. So. You know, you take a risk and sometimes it doesn't work out. I would say this monumentally did not work out uh, in any capacity at all. And if you ever want to look back at, you know, things that don't fit, uh, it's going to be Mr. Ass in the semi-main event at SummerSlam 1999. It just didn't work. No, I agree with both of you entirely on the quality of this match and also... Just how stupid you have to be to put The Rock, who could be so huge for your company, in this kind of match on such a show that was uh, expected to have so many eyes on it. Um, 
who expected to draw this huge buy rate and you've got this guy who could be like the absolute future of your company not only that but stone cold steve austin's hurt he you know he's gonna have to take a couple of months off and maybe you don't have immediate plans for the rock in that title scene again like right now but you know that he's important for your future you're going public and he's one of the top guys in your short well mid to long-term future your next five years and he's in this match on this show with this amount of eyes on it against Billy Gunn. And if he had lost, I agree, it would have been an absolute disaster. Thankfully, we avoided that. Um, but it's certainly uh, being in this match on this show did him no favours, regardless of the outcome. And uh, I'm just glad, like you say, the next night in Raw, they seem to be pulling away from this kind of thing with, with Billy Gunn. And uh, that's definitely for the better. And, I know um, people haven't always been huge fans of the Outlaws, but I mean, if you've got a tag division with teams like Edge and Christian and the New Brood, hopefully that doesn't stick around for too long, but Matt and Jeff Hardy and potentially the Dudley Boys, then having the Outlaws there, that maybe they're not the best workers, but they're certainly a team that the crowd gets behind and a team that is over they're about the only team last year that had any reaction that wasn't dead silence in the wwf tag division and if they were together they would be so much more valuable for crowd investment within that division just being there they don't have to be the champions but they could be there be working with those guys and you'd probably get some good matches out of it and that's another recognized over team in that division but instead you've got billy gunn in the co-main event well, not Coman, it was the, the, well, the second big, be, uh, highest match on the card of SummerSlam, having an absolute stinker with The Rock, who is so important for the future of your company, and it's just outrageous, really. Um, yeah, a really bad match, and uh, I, I don't really have anything positive to say about it, quite frankly. So we move on to our main event of the evening. Uh, so after the convoluted uh, build-up, we are headlined with Austin defending his WWF championship against Triple H and Mankind. Austin entered naturally to a huge ovation. The match is underway and the faces work together early against Hunter until Austin uh, caught Mankind with some punches. Austin sent Mankind to the floor uh, by avoiding a running attack. They fought outside with Austin hitting a clothesline on Mankind and China sent Mankind into the ring post with Jesse not seeing it. Austin sent Hunter into uh, the announce table and choked uh, Helmsley with a cable. Hunter got a chair and hit Austin in his left knee. Ventura asked the crowd if Hunter had hit uh, Austin with the chair and the crowd cheered but Jesse didn't do anything about it. Uh, a knee smashed to the face by Hunter of Mankind before China tripped Mankind and sent him groin first into the ring post. Uh, Jesse did in fact see this, so he kicked her out. Austin went after Triple H in the aisle as they brawled. Uh, back in the ring, Hunter hit Austin in the back of the leg left with a shoulder. Mankind double teamed Austin with Hunter, which led to boos as they hit a double clothesline on Stone Cold. Mankind and Hunter battled each other with Mankind hitting a clothesline, sending Hunter over the top to the floor. Three men now back inside the ring, Austin hitting a low blow on Hunter. 
Austin hit the stunner on Mankind, but Triple H broke up the pin with a chair. Hunter hit Mankind in the head with the chair in a nasty shot, uh, and Hunter went for the cover, but Jesse refused to count because of the chair shot. The fans cheered as Jesse shook his head. Uh, shook his head no, apologies. Uh, Jesse then teased the fight with Hunter, which brought out Shane, who began to argue with Jesse Ventura. Austin then hit a stunner on Shane, and Jesse picked up Shane, tossing him out of the ring, which drew a massive ovation. We had a double clothesline spot by Austin and Hunter before Mankind grabbed Mr. Socko. A double mandible claw by Mankind, but Austin got out of it by going low. Austin hit a clothesline on Hunter, and all three guys were down until Austin got to his feet and hit a stunner on Hunter, but Mankind was able to break up the pin. Austin sends Mankind into the ring post, and Hunter hits Austin with a pedigree. Austin now fighting for everything he's got. The WWF title hangs in the balance. Oh, look at this! Meeting of the minds. Mankind down to both knees. How about Jesse? Hunter down with a punch. Mankind picks up Austin and hits the double arm DDT, covered for one, two, and the three. Hunter gets there half a second too late to break up the pin, so after 17 minutes, after the main event of SummerSlam, Mankind is the new WWF champion. Eric, what did you make of our main event? I did not enjoy it. Uh, I felt like it was sloppy and disconnected. It never felt like there was a real structure. It was kind of just like spot, segment, spot, segment, spot, spot, finish. And and then like Austin taking the fall is super weird. Unless he's going to be gone for a long time and they can have him gone long enough to where nobody remembers that he got pinned. Um, it was just kind of strange to see Austin take what was a relatively clean loss within the confines of a triple threat match. I mean, they had the good sense to have Ventura get involved. They had the good sense to have Jesse you know, impact the outcome of this match. Uh, and then if you follow it up with the next night on Raw, they needed some way for Triple H to say he had been screwed. So I don't put the booking head on often, but like, why not have a, a spar where you see Jesse accidentally hit Triple H and it leads to Mankind uh, pinning Triple H 
when Austin gets taken out or distracted or something like that. And that way Steve can go off. He can get well. You can have a Triple H have a good reason why he should get the title match on Raw. And it, he comes off his way of a less whiny bitch than he did getting there uh, the next night. So I think this match was booked poorly, too, for everything that wanted to get accomplished. And I especially disagree with Stone Cold taking the fall. I think that's dangerous territory to get in um, with a guy like Austin in a match where he was part of none of the follow-up in the coming weeks. So, yeah, I, I pretty much disagree with everything in this match. And to the extent you're going to have fully win to get the belt on Triple H, fine. But I'm also of the opinion that Triple H winning here would have been just as fine. Bob, what did you make of the main event? Well, I'm just relieved that uh, that Eric didn't like it because after I watched it, I, I, I was trying to find a way to say, oh, I enjoyed that. And it just it never came to me. Uh, pretty disappointing three uh, three way match. I mean, there, there's a lot of distractions I felt with uh, Ventura and uh, Shane getting involved. You know, there's like Eric said, there's no real structure to it. Um, it just felt like, oh, here's a big spot, cover, kick out. Okay, let's go to the next one. Is kind of what uh, Eric had mentioned. The the pinfall though on Stone Cold really blew my mind. You know, when Mankind gets the pin, the crowd. It wasn't – they were shocked, but I think it was, like, the bad type of shock. It wasn't shock, like, oh, my God, Mankind won. Like, we're so thrilled about it. There was – the pop that was there was very minimal. And I think it was, like, oh, my God, I can't believe that Mankind actually won. Like, no one thought that he would actually beat Triple H or Stone Cold Steve Austin, and, of course, he did. So it kind of left you at, at the end of the show, like, that was weird. Like, why – why did that just happen? Um, to have Stone Cold take the pin was again was pretty bizarre. So I, if I recall correctly, there was a like a hype video, kind of highlighting the previous encounters of a special referee and how each time Stone Cold got screwed over, or you know with like Mike Tyson. I mean I know he won at WrestleMania 14, but more times than not, either won or if he lost, there was a screw job involved or and whatever. And that wasn't the case here at all. He just flat out lost. Uh, to a guy like man, to a guy like mankind that is has dipped significantly, I think, in terms of where he ranks in in popularity and desire to see. At least for me, uh, that is one hundred one hundred percent the case. The the money here though. So after the match, uh, Triple H, you know, takes a takes Stone Cold out with various chair shots to the knee. That to me would appear to be the money feud. So realistically, I'm not going to expect to see Stone Cold Steve Austin. I know he's got injuries, whether it's his neck, his knee, probably his back, everything in between. Um, I wouldn't expect to see him again till maybe like the Royal Rumble or something. And I know it's been played out where he's either won it or he's final two or, you know, he eventually gets there. But, you know, after a couple, you know, a couple of drinks of some vodka, I sat there and I was wondering, where could they go from here? And I think, you know, WrestleMania 16, maybe their end game for all of this is a Triple H Stone Cold main event. And I I would kind of be invested into that. But I I like Eric's idea of of not having Stone Cold take the pin because it kind of diminishes that end game a little bit that he he took the clean fall. And Triple H's excuse of, you know, getting screwed over 
realistically nothing happened in the match to justify that. So you're just throwing out, you know, worthless phrases that are just are weak. You know, if he did get screwed over by Jesse Ventura, maybe Jesse just had enough of it and he decks him and then mankind pins him. Rolls him up. One, two, three. Quick count. There you go. Absolutely. Exactly. And the crowd would have popped probably big for that because Jesse got involved. I feel like Jesse really didn't do much aside from throwing Shane out of the ring. Um, But they they didn't do that. I just felt like it, it didn't accomplish what should have been accomplished. And I was left dissatisfied with it. Um, but luckily they, they did, I guess you could say the right thing the following night by, by putting it on triple H because mankind should not be the world champion. The, the whole attempt at shock here was misguided and, uh, just not successful. So hopefully they can correct it and get it back on the right track. But this was, uh, I would say a hiccup for sure for a WWF main event. I, I definitely uh, think I enjoyed the match more than both of you um, did, to be fair. Uh, the finish was definitely flat. Um, and I think it's because basically everyone wanted Austin to win, but everyone expected Triple H to win. And then the guy no one expected to win won, and it was just like, oh, like it wasn't a bad reaction. It was just a, a lack of understanding. And I, I, I think it was totally justified really and i mean you spoke uh before we were reviewing this show about mankind's involvement in this main event kind of felt out of nowhere and then he wins the thing and uh yeah i i thought the match maybe i don't know if i felt like there was just a lack of near falls and stuff like that like there there were stuff would happen but i kind of wondered if like they had the china and shane spots there so jesse could kind of like show his authority but i kind of wondered if there was a deliberate attempt to minimize the amount of pinfall attempts just so jesse didn't have to go to the mat too often and i kind of thought that might have hurt the match not that you need near fall after near fall after near fall but felt slightly unusual to me um yeah but i was definitely i think i i wouldn't say it was a great match by any means but i i think i was higher on it than than either of you two um but uh and i also think that i i I understand the idea of austin taking the fall um, is controversial but i think if you're going away for a few months by the time he's back i don't think people will remember it um sure like i think there's so much product these days now we've got we've got raw and smackdown and and a pay-per-view every month the title will probably well the title changes hands the next night it will probably change hands two more times before austin's back and i think if he comes back say october november if it's the rumble we don't like we don't know at this stage when he'll be back I don't think it will be in the minds of people that uh, the last time we saw him, he was taking a clean pin in the main event of SummerSlam. I think it will be an unbelievable, like it's it's Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like I get wanting to protect him, but I think at this stage, he's kind of above stuff like that, damaging him. But I totally get that it's a risk. And I also get that you could have, 
probably got more out of a finish that involved Jesse and then Mankind maybe rolling him up, like you say, Eric. That would have definitely worked better storyline-wise. And then you don't need to have this conversation about, oh, will this hurt Stone Cold Steve Austin? And you don't need to take that risk. So that is definitely a superior option, but I'm not necessarily as convinced that this was such a negative uh, in itself. Back in the ring uh, after Mankind's celebrations, uh, we end the show with Hunter attacking Austin's knee with a steel chair repeatedly, and the show goes off the air with Austin being looked at by concerned officials. So we have the injury angle with Hunter taking his knee apart with a chair, writing Austin off the show for uh, as yet unknown amount of time. So, um, Eric, I'll come to you first. Your overall thoughts on SummerSlam and a score rating out of 10. I'll be frank. We talked about more positive stuff than I even thought we would. Uh, but, boy, this is a main event business. And when most of the last hour and a half of the show is is poor to, you know, offensive to some of the worst things I've ever seen on a major wrestling show, uh, it doesn't do the card uh, very many favors. So, you know, in spite of your D'Lo Browns and your Edging Christians and your Hardy Boys, and your test and Shane, uh, I think the show deserves and is worthy of a 3.5 out of 10. Bob, your overall thoughts and a score rating out of 10. Uh, there's some decent stuff on the undercard. Certainly nothing to go out of your way towards uh, to see at least. Uh, anytime you have Billy Gunn in your co-main event in a singles capacity, it's probably not a good thing. Uh like I said, though, like Jared Delo is pretty good. Uh, the tag team gauntlet was worthwhile, I would say. Test and Shane, if you're a sucker for street fights, that's probably a, a decent thing to maybe find uh, separately from the entire show. But as a whole show, it's not anything you want to go see. Um, they just they didn't accomplish enough storyline-wise like that was coherent for me. Uh, to really give this a positive uh, rating or anything. But I, I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10 just because there are some positives. It's not a complete disaster, but it is a disaster in a lot of key areas moving forward. And uh, they already tried to retract some of it the, the following night on Raw, like I said. So it should be interesting, though, uh, in the next couple of months leading into even Survivor Series or even into the Rumble. Uh, can they get this back on track heading into uh, their biggest show of the year in 2000. Because if this is the direction they're going in 2000, uh, I know the wrestling business is super hot, but if you if you give us Billy Gunn in the co-main, you know, I, I think people might tune out a little bit. So I'll give it a 4 out of 10. Not the worst SummerSlam, but certainly not the best. Yeah, I mean, I think I was more positive about the show before we reviewed it and you guys have definitely brought to the forefront of my mind a lot more issues with the show and don't get me wrong there were some like horrendous aspects of it that like i was very aware of myself um but i think having discussed it i do feel less positive than i did uh, ahead of time i did really enjoy um edging christian i thought test and shane was 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 good thought the opener was fine but i mean 
if you're going five out of ten is is average and anything above is good, then you can't go as high as that for this show. Uh, I mean, if I go 4.5 out of 10, that gives us a nice round four overall. So I think that's what I'm going to go with. Um, 4.5 out of 10. Yeah, uh, definitely a, a disappointing show. Um, but there were positives. But as as you rightly say, Bob, definitely not positives to the extent that they're worth seeking out. So potentially a show to avoid and that's not what you want to be saying about SummerSlam because it's the second biggest or one of the biggest shows of the year for the Fed and uh, this was definitely more of a miss than a hit We kick off the Raw after SummerSlam with Jim Ross in the ring waiting to introduce the new WWF champion Mankind Triple H comes out instead, grabbing JR and threatening to break his arm unless Mankind grants Triple H a title shot on Raw tonight, and that is our main event set. Road Dogg vs Al Snow goes to a no contest after Chris Jericho appears battling with Rhodey to the back. Big Boss Man comes out, lays Snow out with the nightstick and stole Pepper. Undertaker and Big Show vs Acolytes is thrown out after barely more than a minute after the match descends into an all out brawl at ringside. Test is in the ring. He said there comes a time in every man's life he needs to pop the question. And with that he invites out Stephanie. Sensing what was about to happen, Shane interrupts and said that Test and Steph's relationship would continue over my dead body. Steph's cold at Shane, asking how he could try to take something away from her that made her so happy. Test got on one knee and asked Steph to marry him. Steph gave a quick look over to Shane, told Test that she loved him but that she just needed some more time. D'Lo Brown had a match against Mark Henry 1 after the lowdown, but Jeff Jarrett interrupts to cause a DQ. Backstage, Billy Gunn frantically searched for a pen to sign Jarrett's open contract. China walked by but claimed she didn't have a pen, so Mr. Ass told China to stand and guard the contract until he returned. After Billy walked away, China pulled out a pen and signed it herself. The rock-faced gangrel, accompanied by the Hardys, they repeatedly interfere in the match until Christian and Edge run them back to the locker room. Without the assistance of the new brood, Gangrel's finished off after a rock bottom people's elbow combination. Rock grabs the mic and complained while Triple H and Mankind battle over the Federation title. Officials have been signing the rock to matches with Jabronis. He promised to take matters into his own hands. Howard Finkel came to the ring and called out the Road Dog. Road Dog grabs Finkel, but Jericho attacked him from behind as the entire thing was a setup. Jericho leaving the Road Dog lane. With commentary from Big Show and Undertaker, Midian and Viscera defeat Kane and X-Pac after Acolytes attack Kane outside the ring, leaving X-Pac alone to be splashed for the finish. Mr. Ass couldn't find China backstage, so he went to the ring and he calls her out. Billy said that if China would give him the IC title shot, he'd take it. They square off until Jarrett comes from behind, smashing a guitar over China's head. Standing at ringside, Kitty had another guitar, but Ass grabbed it and clobbered Jarrett. And in our main event, Triple H defeated Mankind for the WWF title just 24 hours after he had won it at SummerSlam. Oh, shut your mouth and do your thing. Go ahead. And oh, Shane with a tear from behind. Right into the back of Mankind. But Mankind still on his feet. Triple H tear. That hit Mankind. Right there. Did right there to that? Mankind. Right there. He's out cold, King! The Rock 
Mac is out. Shane is tossing Mankind. Look at Shane. Mankind's out as well. Look at that. Referee pulled out oh. of the ring. Shane just, just cold cocked the referee. Triple H now. Mankind in the ring. Pedigree time. Pedigree time. He got it. Triple H with a pedigree. This is Rose unbelievable. Hill. Will it be? Will it be? So before we uh, round off the month, we have a couple more episodes of TV for us to talk to. So as previously mentioned, uh, we have a title change on the following night on Raw. So we open with a very pissed off Triple H effectively holding JR hostage. He threatens to break his arm unless Mankind agrees to a title shot tonight, which Mankind does. So our main event is set. Mankind defending a newly won WF title against Triple H. In that match, with Shane McMahon serving as the special guest referee, Shane blasted Mankind with a chair before Hunter hit the pedigree for the win. 24 hours after winning the title at SummerSlam, Mankind drops the belt to Triple H and we have a new WWF champion. Bob, what did you make of the title change? The belt ended up on Hunter the night after SummerSlam rather than just putting the thing on him the night before. I think it shows you what wrestling is now. I feel like pay-per-views are borderline an afterthought and that the end game is to get a bigger rating on television than your competition. Uh, Certainly to this point, WCW is, I think, what, more than half uh, behind uh, WF programming. They're doing like a 3-5 at max, sometimes a 4, and uh, WWF is pulling in 7s, 8s. So... Maybe the WWF maybe can you know steer back a little bit, but here I, I get I get it. The mat the match isn't great, and I don't like the whole. Sp- they're really relying on this whole special referee nonsense a lot. And considering the the character that Triple H is trying to portray, I mean, he's trying to come across like he's a badass and that he can. It's his time now and all these other things. And then it's like he needs help. You know, I feel the way to go here is that you have a pissed off Triple H. You have a regular referee in there and he just beats the crap out of mankind and beats him for the title. One, two, three, clean. It shouldn't be complicated. I don't there's definitely value still in mankind. And I think if he were to beat mankind cleanly in this role, it's going to do well for him. But to need an assist from a guy like Shane McMahon, it just it, it just diminishes it a little bit. It's the right choice. Again, it is the right choice to put it on Triple H. His transformation, no matter the help that he may have gotten, it, compared from you know SummerSlam of last year to where he is now, just physically alone, he looks like a top guy to me. You know, some of the promo work and how he's portraying himself, like Eric has mentioned, he certainly needs to define that and get it under control. But I I think in terms of heels and where they're at, he's a, he's a logical choice. Uh, You don't normally put the belt on a guy that has the potential to go into there, but you know, with, you know, with rock and with stone cold is your, your faces, um, you know, they can probably steer the ship for him a little bit 
as we head into you know the next millennium here but uh the right decision is just you got to be able to do a clean finish and know when it's appropriate and right and, and this time with mankind and triple h it was an appropriate time to do it go full steam with them you can't revert back it's like a china situation once you put the belt on him you can't you know next month have him drop it because he wasn't ready if you're going to do it full steam and i'm expecting him to be champion like i said maybe until even wrestlemania that i think that's the type of run that a guy like triple h would need so my curiosity in that regard is is certainly up in the uh the way that they handled it maybe could have been better but i i understand why they did it eric what did you make of this and what do you make of triple h's champion no i i think the idea of triple h's champion if you're going to build a heel the time to do it is for them to win it at SummerSlam and drop it at wrestlemania especially if it's the first title reign or you're trying to you know really uh, uh give someone else knew a lot of credit and triple h is a guy in a position to do that like him or not uh, and he has a lot of flaws and his promos need a lot of work but he is the right guy in the right spot so good for him and now he, it's his job to make himself credible until march or april and then at which point he should uh lose to stone cold or the rock or no, it'll be one of those two guys if, if everything goes to plan and he stays healthy and keeps the belt. That should be the trajectory. So I have no issue with Triple H being the champion. Um, it's going to be a long haul because it's been a long time since there was a heel champion uh, at the top of the card. And that makes it difficult to position guys like Rock and Foley and Austin to the extent that he's available. Um, and even Undertaker and Big Show, it, it really does require some fine-tuning um, of the way that the WWF normally structures its card. That'll be interesting to see. But yeah, if the goal is to essentially build up to WrestleMania using Triple H as strong heel fodder for Austin to rock, great. Let's see it happen. Let's let it play out. Uh, I agree that Foley is a... I think Foley's role is as a transitional champion. Probably would have been better for him to hold it for longer than a night, but if you're going to do it, just do it. It hasn't hurt Macho Man doing the same thing with Hogan, and it uh, in '96 and it won't, or '95, '96, and it won't hurt Foley because he's so over. So I'm fine with it. I think it still would have been better to put the belt on Triple H at SummerSlam overall. They didn't do that. Put it on him the next night, and let's see how this goes. But um, yeah, Triple H has a lot of work to do uh, to get himself uh, over as a credible heel and less of someone who just comes out and whines and moans and has all the help uh, from his rich little buddy that one could ever need. Yeah. I, I mean, this title change happening when I, when it did, it just speaks volumes about the reports that the SummerSlam finish was changed to put the belt on mankind just because it got out that Hunter would be winning. Um, just, put the belt on mankind you have that one day surprise and just do the change that you plan for the next night um i did wonder and i mean i know the answer to this but having this title change happen here it tells me what kind of show and the level of show that smackdown is going to be i mean this is the week that smackdown is beginning sort of 
properly. It's not a pilot episode. It's it is SmackDown on UPN every week. It's it's a, it's your new show. And if you'd really wanted to make a big deal of SmackDown and you wanted to put a statement down as to what level of show SmackDown was going to be, you could have had this show end with like a Mankind title celebration. Hunter can crash that, hold JR hostage in the same way, demand a title shot, and you set the main event for SmackDown with Mankind defending against Hunter. Hunter wins the belt on that first episode. You have a title change on the first episode. You've got eyes on SmackDown from Raw directly, and away you go. Um, the fact that you just do it on Raw with sort of no, like, there's no build. It's it's a it's a match that's announced on the show. Um, it tells you, well, it tells me SmackDown is very much a B or C, well, a B or C level show, and Raw is always going to be the A show, um, which is which is absolutely fair enough you don't want to sacrifice too much of raw um but i wouldn't have been surprised if that had happened just for this week at the very least that is some genius level booking bravo debut episode of Smackdown opens with new WWF champion Triple H coming down to ringside. The Rock interrupts to confront Hunter. A verbal sparring match ensues, only to be broken up by Commissioner Michaels. Sean booked a WWF title match between Hunter and Rock in the main event with himself as the referee. Mr. Ass defeated Jeff Jarrett in our first Smackdown match after the distraction from China. Backstage, Al Snow made a heartfelt plea to the boss man to return his dog Pepper, before Tess was then spotted pacing backstage, awaiting Steph's response to the marriage proposal. Undertaker and Show retained the tag titles in a triple threat match against Acolytes and Kane and X-Pac. Bossman cut a promo, telling Al he had no qualms about sending Pepper straight to hell. He offered to trade Pepper for a hardcore title shot, and Snow accepted. Bossman then defeated Al to win the hardcore title, fleeing the building afterwards with Pepper. We had the in-ring debut of Chris Jericho against Road Dogg, ending in a DQ when Jericho hit Rhodey with a powerbomb through a table. Shamrock was heading to the ring, bumping into Jericho on the way. Jericho sent Finkel after him, enough of a distraction to allow Jericho to nail Shamrock with a chair. Stephanie came down to the ring. Tess proposed to the Federation co-owner once again, and this time the offer is accepted. Bringing out Shane and the posse to attack Tess, the beating continued until Mankind made the save. Mankind offered Shane one free chair shot to start their match. Shane would go on to defeat Mankind after interference from Triple H in China. A quick update was given on Austin's condition, with the Texas Rattlesnake suffering from a torn ligament in his knee. Condition was aggravated by Triple H's brutal attacks at SummerSlam, and Austin swore he would kick his ass and take his belt away from him. We had Tory vs Ivory in an evening gown match. Tory quickly stripped Ivory down to her bra and panties. Tori continued to attack her opponent after the match until Luna ran to the ring to end it. And in our main event, Triple H retained the title against The Rock after Shawn Michaels turned heel, hitting Rocky with switching music. And SmackDown going off the air with Triple H, Michaels, China, and Shane all celebrating. Finally this month, we have that uh, debut episode of SmackDown on UPN. So you've heard a full rundown of the show through our TV reports. Here we'll just be focusing on the main event, of the show, which will Hunter defending his newly won WWF title against The Rock. 
So the finish of that match saw Rock in full control. He had hit the rock bottom. He was setting up for the people's elbow until he had his head kicked off by Shawn Michaels. Triple H is up. He hits a pedigree. Triple H gets the win. Hunter and Shawn celebrate together to end the show. Uh, Eric, SmackDown in itself, very much just just a show. And this was the main event. Um, slightly overbooked, but I would say fun. Oh, yeah, it was this, the debut of SmackDown was akin to one of the better episodes of Monday Night Raw. I mean, any show that has a title match and a big heel turn and a marriage proposal like that's standard fare for a good episode of Raw these days. So I agree with you. And uh, <laughs> this is just more weird shit from the WWF. Like, where did the Shawn Michaels heel turn come from? And is anything going to come from it? And is Shawn Michaels going to come back and wrestle now? Is Are we going to get Shawn Michaels versus The Rock at WrestleMania, which I don't think anybody would complain about. But, like, it's just one of these booking decisions that makes a big splash and just makes – but when you look at it, it makes you wonder, like, where is this really going? Hopefully it's going somewhere good. Uh, but now you have a heel Shawn Michaels now with a – who maybe is going to come in to be a manager of, of Triple H. I don't know just more rocket fuel behind triple H, but the match was good. Triple H and the rock have always had reliably good matches. The heel turn was, you know, pop me in the moment and then we'll see where it goes. So yeah, good, good debut. And, um, I do echo your, your issue though, that it's going to be tough to keep SmackDown at a high level and raw at a high level. And, And the main reason I think is roster depth, but so far so good. Uh, Bob, over to you for your thoughts. Uh, SmackDown was, I thought, pretty effective. Um, It bums me out about this might hurt the quality of Sunday Night Heat. I'm a sucker for some Sunday Night Heat. It's usually a pretty good hour of television. But uh, what I kind of got out of it, there's there's a couple of things. I don't don't mean to go off tangent if, if you're just focusing on the main event, but I just want to go through a couple of things here. Uh, it looks like they're reverting Billy Gunn back to a babyface because he uh, he defeated Bill or uh, he defeated Jeff Jarrett uh, in a non-title match. So I don't know if that's now their direction. I, who knows? I don't know. I don't know if he's at that level, even IC title. Don't know if he's there. Uh, the continuation with like the Unholy Alliance Xbox Kane acolytes acolytes that was continued over was uh, I thought pretty effective. Um, Jericho's in-ring debut occurred on here, which I thought was uh, an interesting choice. I thought maybe that would be a raw thing, especially after uh, SummerSlam and that interaction. I thought that would have maybe been a thing. Um, but to really, I guess, focus on the Triple H rock situation, I really hope that Shawn Michaels isn't associated with Triple H, even in a manager capacity, because I feel like ever since uh, the night after WrestleMania 14, that Triple H has kind of had a chip on his shoulder to get out of that Shawn Michaels shadow. And I know he was within uh, Degeneration X. Realistically, that whole uh, stable of guys was around like six months or so. Uh, but there's no denying that Shawn Michaels is certainly a bigger star than Triple H. Um, and I think to have him in his corner, whether it be as a manager or an associate, whichever you want to call it, uh, would make it maybe difficult for Triple H to advance up in the card. Um, 
my main takeaway out of this was with Shawn Michaels kind of screwing over The Rock, which again, as a special guest referee, because we're just loving that stipulation, uh, I'm kind of hoping that WrestleMania 16, maybe it's Triple H Austin, Michaels Rock. That's your top two. And if that's the case, uh, just from you know promos alone and maybe in, in the wrestling, that's going to maybe shape up to be a really strong WrestleMania program. And uh, if this is just a one-off type of deal, that'd be kind of disappointing. Um, but I would really try to keep Sean away from Triple H, let Triple H do his own thing and elevate himself up the card. Either he can do it or he can't. Don't have Sean there as kind of as a backup. But as a whole, I would say SmackDown, as Eric had said, uh, if you want to compare it to a Raw, I thought it was substantially strong. I thought it would it was better than the previous Raw episode. So um, I can't really complain about it. And you would think with the lack of depth that WWF has in terms of rosters, um, maybe they'll be able to pull off two two-hour programs in a week. I certainly wouldn't think it leading into it. You don't want to you know, dilute your product too much, but uh, an effective episode, hopefully they can can carry it over and also maybe hopefully get more depth in the coming months, as we have already know with the Deli Boys and Steve Richards apparently coming in. They're already on the verge of doing that. So, so you pretty, get a top tag, team, yeah, top tag team and a superstar main eventer right there. That really does help things. Absolutely. <laughs> The final Raw of the month opened with The Rock cutting a promo about the main event of SmackDown. It challenges Triple H to come down and defend the title, but he ignores it, causing The Rock to head to the backstage area, but he was easy prey there for Triple H, China, and Shane. Shane and the posse come to ringside to announce Mankind and Rock would be granted title shots if they were capable of defeating certain opponents. The Rock was paired up against The Undertaker, while Mankind is facing the posse in a handicap match. Shane is the referee for the latter. Mankind laid them all out, but Shane did not count the pinfall. Shane gets punished with the mandible claw. Big Show takes Undertaker's place in the match against The Rock in a no-holds-barred contest, picking up the win following a slow choke slam through the announcer table. <laughs> Show slam, as I nearly said. Maybe even slow slam. The hardcore champ apologised to Snow for the entire Pepper situation. The boss man then said he would personally hand Pepper over on SmackDown. Great match with X-Pac defeating Taka following an X-Factor. Four corners elimination match to determine number one contenders to the tag team title. Between Edge and Christian, the new brood, the Acolytes and Hardcore and Crash, the match broke down into a huge brawl as Midian, Viscera, Droz, Albert, Stevie and the Blue Mini run in and the match was thrown out. The Rock challenged Big Show and Undertaker with Mankind offering to team with him to face the tag champions, that's our main event for the evening. Jarrett and Mark Henry defeat Mr. Ass and D'Lo after China hit Billy with Jarrett's guitar. Tests were shown asking Pat Patterson and Jerry Briscoe to be best men for the upcoming nuptials with Stephanie. Ken Shamrock defeats Gangrel by a submission before Jericho appears on the Titantron and challenges him. And the main event with the unlikely duo of The Rock and Mankind defeating Undertaker and Big Show for the tag titles. Rocky getting the win after the People's Elbow on The Big Show. And that will just about do it for the August 1999 WWF edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. I'd like to thank firstly Eric for being on the show. Eric, thank you very much. Chris, uh, we're 0 for 3 on uh, the Big Four this year in WWF, so hopefully Survivor Series gives us something worthwhile. 
Yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, of course, uh, thank you also to Bob. Thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, both guests are always excellent with their insightful contributions throughout the show. Um, listener, thank you very much for listening. Um, yeah, a disappointing SummerSlam. And uh, as Eric says, over three. So big, big hopes for Survivor Series. Um, but until then, we'll be back in September. So thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.